Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This is episode 315, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking with Becca Tarnas about the significations and meaning of the planet Venus in astrology. Uh, so, hey, Becca, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Yeah, I'm excited to do this episode. This is the fourth episode in my series on the significations of the planets, uh, which started with the moon, and then I did the sun, and then Mercury. And today, we're finally going to do a deep dive into the significations of Venus and some of the different astrological techniques associated with Venus. Um, and you've you've seen, I think, all the previous episodes, right? It's a wonderful series. It was really enjoyable to listen to each one in preparation for this and just get a sense of the different voices you brought in to illustrate these different planetary archetypes. Yeah, yeah. well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so part of, for those that are just finding this series, part of the approach is that we're going to read through a series of translations of different passages and excerpts from some ancient astrologers and some modern astrologers to see how they talk about Venus and, and what it means in astrology. And we're going to use that as the jumping off point for a discussion about the significations of Venus and just understanding and developing a deeper understanding of what that means from an astrological standpoint. So um, I think that's the main thing that I wanted to mention and introduce. Are there any other preliminaries that we should get in, out of the way before we jump into our first set of passages? Hmm. Well, I just I have to say it feels like an honor to be able to discuss Venus. I was really excited when you invited me to do this episode. I've always had a deep love of that archetype and the different goddesses and gods associated with Venus. So just thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, and you've done a lecture, I think, uh, not too long ago on Venus, you said, right? Focusing on Venus retrograde periods, yes. Yeah. What was that for? That was for the Association of Young Astrologers, actually. Okay. Nice. Yeah. That was like an AYA lecture. Is that a recording available on your website? It isn't available through my website, but I think it's available through theirs. Okay, cool. So I think that's youngastrologers.org or .com or something like that if people want to want to Google that. Um, excellent. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into it then, I think, with our first um, set of passages just to get a starting point for what this planet means in astrology. So our first author is the second century astrologer Vadius Valens. Can you see the uh, text okay here? I can, yeah. Okay. So Vadius Valens was an astrologer who lived in Egypt in the second century. Um, this is a translation of his text from my book. Uh, his book is called The Anthology. And right at the very beginning of the anthology, he um, outlines the significations of the planets pretty extensively. So he's one of our best sources for understanding how the ancient Greco-Roman astrologers understood the different planets. So I'll go ahead and just read it, and then we can talk about it. So um, Valens says, Venus is desire and love, and signifies mother and nurse. She makes priesthoods, public benefactors, wearing of golden ornaments, the wearing of crowns, merriment, friendships, companionship, the acquisition of additional property, purchasing of ornaments, reconciliations for the good, marriages, refined arts, pleasant sounds, music making, 
sweet singing, beauty of form, painting, mixing of colors and embroidery, purple dyeing and perfume making, both the inventors and also the masters of these professions, artistic or commercial works involving emeralds and precious stones, ivory working, and those who spin gold thread, decorate with gold, hair cutters, those who are fond of cleanliness and play, she brings to pass within its own bounds or degrees of the zodiacal signs, and she grants the office of market overseer, measures, weights, trades, shops, giving, receiving, laughter, rejoicing, order, aquatic animals, and she gives assistance from royal women or relatives and secures a remarkable reputation, especially when Venus cooperates in such matters in the birth chart. Of parts of the body, she rules the neck, face, lips, nose, and the front parts of the foot to the head, the parts of intercourse. Of the internal parts of the body, she rules the lungs, and Venus is also the nourishing of another who is capable of receiving and of pleasure. Of substances, she rules precious stones and multicolored adornments. Of produce, she rules the olive. She's of the nocturnal sect, the color white, and very oily in taste. Hmm. <laughs> so that's Valens's super long passage on Valens uh, on Venus and the significations of Venus. Um, what are some of the things that stand out to you there? One of the things that's interesting is like there's some that are very um, obvious ones, especially from our perspective as modern astrologers. Um, but there's also some that stand out as a little different in some of the ancient astrologers um, that people are sometimes surprised at, like the association with priesthoods, um, cleanliness, and other things like that are interesting ancient associations that don't, I don't know, aren't normally mentioned as frequently in modern times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cleanliness really stood out to me, and and yet the more that I thought about it, kind of the ritual of readying oneself to be beautiful, to be adorned, is one of of cleaning oneself or of perfuming. And you know, if we think about um, everything that goes into that kind of cleansing ritual, and even you know, sweet smelling soaps and perfumes and so on that. Uh, would be probably even more important in a time where you don't have modern plumbing and so on. Um, so I I can see that connection even when it's a surprise. Yeah, and it, and it makes a lot of sense also as the contrast. Like, what's the opposite of cleanliness? Would be like dirtiness or things being disorderly or out of order, as opposed to Venus, which is like very good at putting things. In order, or in a, like a nice order, or something like that. So it's an interesting contrast, and I guess that's a good um, starting point for actually also talking about since we've done um, the Sun and Moon and Mercury. Venus is actually the first of the uh, benefic versus malefic planets, and so this is the first one where we'll start to see a lot of contrasts of one planet signifying something and that being opposed to or contrasted with some sort of opposite. Um, in the benefic malefic spectrum, especially in ancient astrology, where uh, Venus and Jupiter were said to be the two benefic planets or the two good doers, whereas Mars and Saturn were said to be the two malefic planets or or bad doers or evil doers. And even though that distinction was not always very strictly held, because sometimes the benefics could indicate 
challenging things, and sometimes the malefics could indicate constructive or positive things. It was oftentimes like a good starting point for understanding some of the basic significations and contrasts between different groups of planets. Mm, definitely. I mean, when when we read through this paragraph, there's just the sense of these are all the nice things in life. These are the luxurious things and the beautiful things. And um, you know, while the first two significations of um, desire and love are one of the things that are it's what we would immediately think of, even as contemporary astrologers, of what Venus is about. But it, moving into the more specific expressions, it's just um, like a, a multifaceted expression of those, you know, desire, love, beauty that kind of carries uh, so fully what the rest of these descriptions are. You know, looking at. Um, the the ornaments and the the uh, the gold wearing of golden ornaments and um, everything around painting and mixing of colors and embroidery it's all about adornment it's all about beauty even when it's specific and um, I, another one that really stood out to me was the the purple dyeing because at that time to dye something purple it, it was the most rare of colors to be and the most expensive color to be able to dye a piece of cloth and therefore it was only reserved for royalty so that venus would uh oversee purple dyeing as well as you know perfume making and so on um just each one of these you you're given a rich image of yet another expression of beauty yeah, wasn't it? There was like a, a snail or like a mollusk or something that was in the Mediterranean that was very special and very rare. And I think they used it so much um, for dyeing purple of like royal garments and stuff that it eventually like went extinct or something like that. Oh, so many of these things that are limited when it comes to Venus, you know, looking at the precious stones or the, um, the diamonds, the gold, the, uh, the ivory. There's another one that, you know, might be Venusian, but we don't want to be touching that anymore. Right. Um, and one thing I meant to share really quickly for those that are kind of new to astrology is just some a basic graphic that shows um, Venus, and this is the symbol for Venus or the glyph for Venus, which is traditionally a circle with a cross directly underneath it. And in terms of the zodiacal signs that Venus is associated with. Um, she's said to have her her domicile or her home sign in the signs of Taurus and Libra, and the two signs opposite to that are said to be the signs of her antithesis or uh, detriment, as it's sometimes called, which are Scorpio, which is opposite to the domicile of Taurus, and then Aries, which is opposite to the domicile of Libra. Hmm. Um, and then finally, the exaltation is said to be in Pisces. And the sign opposite to that is said to be the depression or the fall of Venus. Mm. So that's just the basic essential dignities of of the planet. With the the domiciles, uh, Taurus and Libra, I was thinking about this the other day. How the the time of the year, if we're thinking within uh, you know the northern hemisphere and a temperate climate. The time of the year where the sun is moving through Taurus is that middle of spring, 
when all the blossoms are out, where the world is coming alive with beauty. And when we think of the time when the sun is moving through Libra in, in the tropical zodiac, that's the beginning of autumn, when all the leaves are turning these brilliant, beautiful colors. And just thinking about those two moments in the year, not exactly parallel, they're not opposite each other. They're, um, you know, at the, the angle that, that they make to one another. And, um, that they really are in some ways, you know, of course it's open for argument, the most, um, expressively beautiful times of year where you have these blossoms in spring, where you have these colorful leaves falling in the autumn. And how appropriate that those would be the times that that Venus oversees. Yeah, definitely the the period in which nature is sort of the the height of its um, beauty in some sense, as opposed to you know the signs opposite to the two luminaries, which happen. The the luminaries have their signs in the the middle or the height of the the summer in the northern hemisphere, and opposite to that is the signs of Saturn in the winter, where Everything is cold and has sort of died at that point, and at least in terms of most plant life, has sort of gone dormant. Mm -hmm. And when we look back at what Valens is saying, that you know one of the qualities is mixing of colors, and that's what we see at those times of year is all the colors are out and present and, and adorning nature. Um, that the um, I think it's Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said that nature laughs in flowers, and that in in this paragraph, the association of Venus with with laughter and um, with rejoicing, and how flowers, in some way, um, or or the autumn leaves, I, I would add, are that kind of rejoicing of of nature. Yeah, and and of color and. Uh, rejoicing and also like play and and by extension, um, some of the authors start mentioning things like games and um, other things that bring enjoyment or pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when we think about the relational element of Venus, um, that you know, when I am describing Venus, I'll often start by saying, "Well, Venus relates to the heart." And any relationship where your heart is involved, whether that is love or romance or friendship, and, and friendship is mentioned here, companionship is mentioned here. And those like games of pleasure are ones, maybe not necessarily the heart is always involved, but that there's friendship, that there's companionship, that there's that um, kind of an intimacy that's present in those sorts of settings. Um, where we're we're exchanging uh, energy with others, um, laughter and so on. Right. So there's this um, almost like relational component to Venus that's like a heavy underlying um, theme or trend. And there was a little bit of that with Mercury, the the previous planet, but it was more in the idea of like transmitting information and like communication and and transmitting knowledge as being. Mercury is being the gatekeeper between the sun at the center of the solar system and the rest of the planets. So there's this idea of like transmitting something or transmitting information. And with Venus, um, which is the next inner planet after Mercury, we also have that almost relational component in some way, but it's having to do with other people or, or bringing in the other and the idea of relationships in general. Mm-hmm. 
And this is something I would love to hear your thoughts on this and the very first line from Valens of Venus's desire and love and signifies mother and nurse. And I've very much associated the, the mother or the maternal. And I think you discussed this in the, the moon episode with the moon, the lunar archetype. And, um, but what we can see in these sources is that there is this connection to, um, to the mother, to, uh, nurturing or caretaking that is also connected with Venus. And of course it takes, um, lovemaking to become a mother. Um, to become a parent. So I, you know, I can see the connection there, almost like a graduation from one, from Venus toward the moon to, to parenthood or motherhood. Um, but I found that association right in the first line to be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really comes up with Venus, and especially in terms of the traditional planets, when it comes to the, the breakdown of the assignment of gender to different planets in ancient astrology, it was a bit lopsided so that the two main feminine planets that, that get associated with women in the ancient texts are the moon and then also Venus. And so they end up having to, to share, um, not share a lot of significations, but in between the two of them, most of the, the significations related to women end up sort of getting jammed into those two in, in one way or another. Um, and I think that's a big part of it is just that Venus in general is said to be one of the planets that signifies women in a person's life and in a person's chart. And so one of the primary ways that that can come into play very early in the life is either through the mother or through um, whoever is like nursing the infant at the time. Mm -hmm. Looking at that gender role and the relationship of the different um, planetary meanings to that, I mean, that's what's so uh, fascinating about doing a study like this where we go back to an ancient text and then we look at um, a uh, medieval or early modern text or a contemporary text is that we can see the evolution of um, a planetary meaning or set of meanings or an archetype and simultaneously recognize a core of meaning there. Um, I have a you know all the way through I think we're gonna be seeing references to love, beauty, desire, uh, the arts. But then some of these more specific expressions will change. And that speaks to the culture, the time, this kind of participatory relationship between that moment and how the, the planet's meaning would be interpreted um, and would have to be interpreted because that's the the culture it's coming into. So of course it means that then. But now when we read these texts, we're almost being asked to see through them. And well, how can we apply this without getting lost in the literal and rather see through it symbolically and uh, and therefore apply it in a contemporary context, knowing there's been this kind of symbolic evolution. And, and that's where we can really free up how we apply these different planetary archetypes without losing that core of meaning that was there present from the beginning, maybe even before human participation in it. We don't necessarily know. Um, and so for in today's context, I like to speak about, you know, if we need to bring in the feminine or we need to bring in the masculine, 
I really like to speak about a like a Venusian masculine or a Venusian feminine. And you can do the same with um, you know, the sun and the moon, for example, a solar feminine. And what does it mean to be a solar woman? What does it mean to be uh, a a lunar man? And and yet the gift of astrology is that it gives us these terms where we can still describe these qualities of being, say, relational or uh, receptive or nurturing or caring, but not then saying, well, that's feminine and that's only feminine. It, it really gives us more nuance to how we can allow the conversation to unfold. And that's where I would love to see the language of astrology almost leap beyond the walls of astrology, even if you're not using it in a technical astrological sense. How can we use, um, you know, oh, you know, he's so Venusian or she's so Martian um, in our everyday language. So that that's my hope, how that, that would be able to, to be applied in a contemporary context. Yeah, and astrology is always um, partially a product of the culture in which it's practiced, and so you'll see the astrologers expressing the language of astrology through the lens of their culture in different time periods, and that's something we'll see as we read through different passages. Um, and I think, yeah, it's always when you're studying older astrological texts, even going back a few decades, it's always important to look at them within that cultural context from a historical perspective as just being a representation partially of the times in which the astrologer lived, but then also trying to read between the lines to understand the deeper or underlying archetypal meaning of the planet that might be more consistent throughout and might be slightly less dependent on culture. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's like intuiting to some core of meaning that in each era or through each individual astrologer even takes on a different refraction. You know, and I recognize that I'm going to speak about Venus a little bit differently because of my Venus placements and someone else would speak about it in a totally different way, but we could still recognize the um the common uh Venusian element that's present there. Right. And definitely in the past few decades, there have been a lot of discussions about, and a lot of effort has been put towards by astrologers, by contemporary astrologers, to um, look at the planets and redefine them in terms of um, current, the current understanding and current cultural norms in terms of things like gender and sexual orientation and gender roles and other things like that. Um, and that's still an ongoing dialogue in the astrological community today. I mean, it's an ongoing dialogue just in our culture in general. So, of course, the astrology itself is also going to be a reflection of that and is going to have to grow and change in different ways to adapt to the sensibilities of modern times. So, um, you know, finding a, a, a middle ground and a way to balance understanding the sort of historical um, view of, of Venus and other planets, especially once you start getting into issues of, of things like gender, is tricky, but is just finding balance, I guess, between that versus uh, the more contemporary views is, is really important. Yeah. It's exciting to be part of an evolving tradition and to, to see how something so ancient is also alive and and changing with us and and how the language can adapt and will continue to adapt i, I think that's so important not to get overly stuck in in any 
particular past definition. Oh, someone said it this way at this time, and therefore it's always going to be that way. Um, and and again, just the importance of that seeing through to the symbol that that lies behind it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the tradition has always been growing and changing. It's never been static, and that's sometimes a misconception that some astrologers, especially some traditional astrologers, have this idea that it's always been this one singular thing, but that's not that's never been true. While there've been core components that have stayed consistent during different periods or for long spans of time, once they were introduced, almost every concept or technique in astrology was new at some point and was introduced at some point before it became like a standard idea as part of the tradition. And sometimes even very standard concepts or ideas that we take for granted and we think have been around forever um, may have been different or, or looked at differently in different eras. So when it comes to Venus, one of the things that's interesting and that might be a good segue to talk about is part of the the cultural, maybe even more than some of the other planets that I've talked about at this point in the series, um, some of the cultural understanding of Venus, especially in ancient astrology, was very much tied in with the mythology associated with the goddess Aphrodite, uh, as well as some of the other goddesses that were um, part of that lineage or part of that tradition in Mediterranean and Middle Eastern culture, which is basically where Western astrology comes from. So it's like we have somebody like Valens, Vedius Valens, who was living in the Greco-Roman world in the second century. The name he used when he referred to Venus was Aphrodite. So when astrologers used that name, that automatically would have invoked some of the mythological and cultural associations with that goddess uh, in ancient times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to look at different cultures to see, you know, who carries that expression of the the deity of love or the deity of beauty, and often it does overlap, but every so often it doesn't. And it's true that in many pantheons, it is a feminine figure, but every so often it isn't. And, and that's also just worth making note of um, which cultures will choose a more masculine expression, or some will have both, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and that in any myth that we invoke that has the, that expresses this Venusian quality, she or he is inevitably inevitably going to be blended with other you know what we might think of now as planetary archetypes but these myths are always relational all of the stories that are being told the gods and goddesses don't come in isolation and so um it's like we again get to see different refractions of Venus, depending on which culture you look at, which particular story even, whether it's of Aphrodite or, um, you know, if we look to uh, the Norse mythologies to, you know, Freya as an expression, or um, if we look to the Yoruba tradition and um, the Orisha Oshun as an expression of that Venusian archetype, or um, in the Egyptian, there, there's quite a few actually coming out of Egypt that uh, we would think of as expressions of of Venus. Um, you know, one of them being Hathor, but um, you know, Isis in some ways carries qualities of that as well. Several others. Um, same with the Vedic tradition. Multiple different gods and goddesses who have 
um, these Venusian qualities. I think the one maybe closest to Aphrodite might be Lakshmi, um, but you know we can see uh, Sita or um, even the artistic element in Saraswati. Um, and then, of course, there's the the myth of Inanna in the Sumerian tradition. Ishtar uh, is another name for her that's so intimately connected to the cycles of of Venus. Um, and then we have some male ones. I mean, even within the Greek tradition, the the son of Aphrodite and um, Ares is uh, Eros, and that this is a a god of love, or some like Plato described Eros as a daemon of love, not quite at the same level as the um, as the gods and goddesses, but more of an intermediate being who traverses between the realm of the gods and and the realm of human beings, carrying love messages. Uh, Eros, which in the Roman becomes Cupid, um, or we have Adonis as another male figure coming out of out of the Greek. So just getting to see these different uh, figures who carry this Venus energy, is it's fascinating to know all their stories and kind of compare them. Yeah, and one of the ideas, uh, the last time you were on the podcast, I actually put you on the spot and I asked you to define what is an archetype. And um, I've realized I need to stop like doing that and attempting people to, de- making people define something so broad. But this is a really good example of that in practice where um, part of the concept is just that there is this concept or this archetype that exists out there, perhaps independently of Venus and what Venus signifies or what it represents in our world or in our universe, and that that concept or that archetype can manifest itself in different cultures in very similar ways or archetypally similar ways. And that that's the reason why you can list off that so many goddesses in different cultures that have a similar role or a similar meaning in those cultures, even though it was developed independently, right? Exactly. It's as though this archetypal principle, which depending on your philosophical position could be seen as transcendent, that that archetype is then manifesting through different cultures. And not just manifesting through different cultures, but being participated in, enacted forth, called forth into different forms. And that all of these different goddesses and gods that, you know, let's use the name Venus just because we need a name. <laughs> um, and that's the name of the, the planet that we're using, but it's like they're all different, um, symbolic clothing almost to allow that transcendent principle to come to us in a particular cultural form. Because in its full transcendence, we can't quite perceive it, that it's something beyond what is really given form. And so these different mythic expressions allow us to see a figure and recognize you know what what animals or what colors or fruits are sacred to her or to him uh, but that that's all kind of a cultural clothing that nonetheless um resounds true to that transcendent archetype and in this discussion of venus i do think it's helpful to bring in not just the mythic side but also the philosophical side 
that um, you know, when we look to ancient Greece, it was the philosopher Plato who really articulated the idea of an archetype, or for him, what was a form or an idea, uh, the archai, first principles, to articulate it philosophically rather than religiously or mythically. And in that articulation, we can see exactly what we're talking about here, but for a moment, maybe separated from that, uh, that particular being or form without the clothing, without the humanoid guise even, but just simply you know, for Plato, it's the archetype or the ideal form of beauty, beauty with a capital B, and that we can recognize, recognize that archetype out in the world in all its diverse forms whether that is in you know a rose that we're looking at or um the the sunrise or our our beloved's face um or even venus i mean it seems so clear to me when we are out you know early in the morning or late at night and venus is in either the morning or evening star phase and you look at venus and there's no question that this celestial body is the seat of the deity of beauty and love. That diamond shining brightness of Venus, there's just, in my mind and my imagination, there's no question about that. And when, when you see her sparkling like a diamond there, it's just, it's breathtaking, it's exquisite. No wonder that this very clear association between the planetary body and that you know, this particular god or goddess and this particular archetype of beauty and love all became associated as one. Yeah, and that's I'm glad you mentioned that the seeing Venus in the night sky because Venus is actually um, the most bright planet. It, it appears to us if you just look at it in the night sky, and if you can see Venus at that time of the year, that it's like a really bright star. Um, that's it's actually brighter than any of the other planets that can be seen with the naked eye. So that's one of the things that stands out about Venus um, in terms of just the visual observation of it, and probably the starting point for its meaning in astrology is that it's this very um, bright, beautiful star that will either appear very briefly, either early in the morning just before sunrise, or it will appear uh, very late. Um, just after sunset in the evening and some parts of the year it it's really i think if you brought together a like a group of children for example to watch venus after sunset and you just could ask them well, what do you see what give some descriptors i imagine that you would hear something like you know dazzling shining breathtaking um, maybe these are very articulate children. <laughs> right. uh, but that that first impression of seeing this particular planetary body, I think, really carries a lot of the qualities that we are using when uh, we're reading these different descriptions of what Venus means. You can take so much of it just from the experience of gazing, gazing upon Venus and um, in the night sky. Yeah, um, and I think that's really important. I'm trying to find like a picture, but I'm not finding a good stock picture that I can share. But um, just sort of imagine. Actually, here's one. Let me take that picture really quickly. So, um, 
Venus standing out uh, to the naked eye and just appearing as this bright um, star in the sky. Here's a little image of Venus, for example, where um, this must be like just after sunset. So the sun's gone down, and then all the stars start to appear in the night sky. But there's this one that's just much brighter and stands out uh, compared to the other other stars. And I think that's actually isn't that like what the the Latin name for Venus ends up being tied in with, where it's named um, Lucifer, I think, which means like morning star. Right, Lucifer would have a loose light, the the light bringer, and um, that 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 light bringer is it just so captivates our attention when when we see Venus there. There's this sense of oh, what is that <laughs> compared compared to all the other stars? And that's very much the experience for anyone who's had the experience of falling in love. You say, who is that? They stand out like that bright star uh, against all the others because there's some special connection there. I love that. And that's a really great point. The original Greek term for Venus besides um, Aphrodite, which some of the attributions of the names of the gods to the planets came a little bit later. And before that, they had um, purely descriptive names. And in Greek, the term was phosphorus, which means mm. literally light bringer in Greek. Mm. Oh, that's a that's a perfect name. And I believe that in Greece, as well as um, I think maybe also in Mayan culture, there were different gods ascribed at particular points to the morning and the evening star, and that the the morning star was seen as more of a, a lover, and the evening star was seen as a warrior. And a number of these different uh, gods or goddesses of love also are gods of war, and we see how intimately connected those are, and um, whether we're seeing that connection just within Venus as morning and evening star or particular gods, or the special connection that Venus has to Mars, whether that's uh, mythically or even just in terms of celestial placement on either side of the Earth, or in terms of the, the rulerships, if we come back to the essential dignities, and that the that Venus is in antithesis in Mars's signs and vice versa. So they have this relationship, but it's a bit of a contentious one too. They're opposites, but as they say, opposites attract. <laughs> and so we have a very dynamic lover warrior kind of um, mythic relationship playing out at, uh, in multiple cultures and uh, also in just astrological technique and system. Yeah, totally. And that's super important. And that whole connection in the Greek pantheon of Aphrodite or Venus as the goddess of love and beauty and, and the contrast with Ares uh, or Mars as the god of war. And it's interesting. Um, let's see. So, so another one I want to, sh another image I want to show for the YouTube viewers or the video viewers was the um, famous painting, of course, by Botticelli of like Venus emerging from from the waves as part of the mythology of the origins of Venus, um, and how that contrast of um, another way that's sometimes talked about in the philosophical tradition between love and strife as being core archetypal principles in the world 
and how that concept gets sort of built into the astrology, as you were saying, between uh, through the contrast between Venus and Mars, that are the two planets that are thought to represent those two core principles. Mm, yeah, they uh, seeing. I mean, this kind of speaks to something larger too that we see throughout uh, the astrological system, whether it's looking at planets or looking at the configurations of the signs, but how. Uh, it, they really are all relational, that there are all of these opposites and qualities, and that it's almost as though one archetype calls in the other. If we are too Martian, if we're too angry or violent or assertive, it's almost as though we have to call in the love and the harmony and the grace. But at the same time, we can't just be uh you know, passive or re only receptive or things can't, nothing will happen. So we need Mars to come in to, to make a little action happen. And I think that's why Venus and Mars are such great, uh, counterbalances to each other that there is this kind of, um, lover's friction between them. And that, you know, for example, you need both uh, the principles of Venus and Mars for a kiss to happen because, uh, Venus is there to attract, to allure, to be beautiful. But for that moment of connection, you also need that um, Martian assertion um, that is nonetheless attuned to be able to make that connection or for there to be this kind of um, erotic friction between the two. And I guess that makes so much sense, erotic coming from Eros, which is the child of, of these two gods of Aphrodite and Ares. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's this more um, somewhat like receptive or attractive quality with the Venus, whereas there's this other quality of action, um, but it is the other side of the coin with that with Mars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. They really seem to balance. <laughs> okay. Um, and here is just a diagram, again, for those just curious about some of the basics, just in terms of the two home signs of Venus, which are Taurus and uh, Libra being opposite to the two home signs of Mars, which are Aries and Scorpio. And that just sets up a fundamental opposition and tension between those two planets as opposites, but oftentimes in a way where it's just uh, the, the reverse side of the same coin in some sense. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was learning that, um, you know, just all those details of the zodiac and the great joy of when you go, of course, of course, uh, Venus is opposite Mars. Of course, Saturn is opposite the sun and opposite the moon. It's just uh, the complementarity is uh, extraordinary. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, and actually, going back to your part of the contrasts, I think very early in, in ancient astrology, when it came down to some of the fundamental principles of observational astronomy, one of the things that you'll notice, and just going back to the benefic-malefic distinction, is Venus and Jupiter in the night sky appear as these two bright, sort of white, twinkling stars um, that are very notable and that you'll see move against the backdrop of the other stars over a long enough period of time, over several nights, um, because the planets move, of course, and the other fixed stars stay fixed. Um, but in contrast to that, Mars appears as this reddish, kind of darker star, and Saturn appears more brown and, and even darker and more dim compared to the other planets. 
So that's part of what I think sets up the basic contrast between the benefic and malefic planets is that initial observational component of their their appearance to the naked eye. We're really getting into the phenomenology of of astrology where we're looking at what do the actual planets look like from our perspective and how much of a story that tells and that's you know I'm I'm sure that this comes up often amongst astrologers but I just always feel like it's such an important reminder to say astrology students to actually go outside and gaze upon the stars and let them be your first teacher before any book before uh you know anything else just allow the the stars to speak to you allow the planets to speak to you and um use every sense to be able to take in those meanings and then check that against you know the books and the articles and the tradition and your teachers and so on but that importance of first experience and actual witnessing i think is really essential and just exactly what you were describing um how those appearances do give us a really clear sense of why venus and jupiter are the benefics and why mars and saturn are the malefics yeah and also just in terms of first principles and going back to first principles and imagining that you didn't know any of this or there was no established or pre-inherited tradition that you're just the receiver of or learning but imagine that you had to recreate astrology from scratch and decide what everything means one of the most fundamental starting points is just if something is going to mean something then there would need to be a second thing that would indicate its opposite so starting to establish what means what, um, one of the great starting points is by just setting up groups of opposing principles as just a basic fundamental building block of, or, or starting point. Hmm. What this conversation is making me realize is how much the, this Venusian principle of beauty and harmony and order is part of the the development of the astrological system in general but also you know we refer to the cosmos and cosmos means ordered beauty and so in this speaking about uh, this ordered system we inherently have to reference venus or that venusian principle at least as as part of all of it it must be harmonious it must be balanced it must be beautiful in order to make sense and how um, that speaks to the kind of consciousness that uh, the uh, astrological tradition was emerging out of, one that really uh, privileged that, prioritized harmony and beauty. Yeah, and harmony and beauty, and saw that as an important property in the cosmos that kept things together and um, led to sort of coherency. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, well, let's go back. See, before we move on to our next author, where we jump forward several centuries, just to keep us going, let's see if there's anything else in Valens that's worth mentioning briefly before we move on. Is there anything that stands out to you? Um, I mean, we've got all sorts of arts and artists, um, music making, even. Um, yeah, is there anything else that either makes sense or anything that stands out that's odd in Valens compared to other things? Hmm. 
as you just brought up, focusing on the arts, especially on music, pleasant sounds, as opposed to say loud sounds, which we could think of as being more Martian, um, sweet singing, uh, the use of the word sweet too, not just in terms of singing, but how much sweet can be applied to a lot of different elements related right, to or, Venus. Um, harmonious is a really good yes. like Venus term, especially yeah. when contrasted with its opposite, which is you know something that's unharmonious or disharmonious. Is that the correct opposite to harmonious? Mm -hmm. Yep, this uh, disharmony or discordant. Discordant. Um, that's a really good maybe. term. Yeah. Um, so that stood out, uh, and also just noting some of the body parts mentioned as well. I mean, of course, it makes sense that Venus would rule the um, the parts of the body related to intercourse, but also just like the face, um, the the neck, the face, the lips, the nose. I mean, um, many of those parts of the body are ones that, particularly women, but that human beings adorn. Um, adorning the face, the lips, um, even adornment in the form of like, you know, piercings, for example, or uh, jewelry in that way. And then I did think it was interesting, the whole front part of the body from uh, foot to head that Venus uh, oversees all of that. Um, what do you feel about the lungs? That one kind of stood out to me as interesting. Yeah, I don't actually know. I was thinking about that as well, because I know you know, Mercury is usually like um, the mouth and the hands and things like that, and sometimes things that come in pairs. But I, I did think the lung association in Venus in balance was interesting, but I'm not sure symbolically why they went for that versus something else. Yeah. I know I want to run with it of like, okay, well, the breath is moving through the lungs. The breath is obviously life giving and. Um, that at that time, breath would have been associated with spirit. Um, and actually, okay, now I'm really going to run metaphorically, okay. uh, with the lungs being where the, you know, the breath comes in, which is the spirit, which is the wind. We see translations of the same words kind of meaning the same, same thing there, both in Greek and in Latin and like spiritus or uh, anima. Um, but that there's this mention in um, Valens of she makes priesthoods and that there's this connection to religion and that if we think of the breath as the spirit as the divine and you know the priesthood is overseeing the divine overseeing the relationship to the divine mediating between that and kind of being in the role of devotion which is one of love as well um, I'm kind of running metaphorically with this, but I can kind of see how the lungs might symbolically connect to that, that kind of devotion to spirit, which we actually experience with every single breath into the lungs, like that, um, that love of the gift of life, really, that comes in through each breath. Yeah, totally. Um, and I can also, he, he talks a lot about like receiving, and I can think also about the idea of how you breathe in, like take a deep breath, and you sort of um, receive the air very like deeply into your body, and then that process of like exhaling. And there's something maybe tied in there as well in terms of this notion of um, inhale versus exhale and, and receiving versus giving. Uh, that's sort of tied in with some of the dynamic of Venus. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, that totally makes sense with the the receiving and the giving and. 
And even what I'm noticing, we're talking about breath. So of course, I'm breathing a little more deeply and consciously and how it calms us Hmm. and that it brings us more into a place of, of harmony and one of ease and relaxation and therefore kind of pleasant experience when we feel more calm through that, that breath in the lungs. Right. Like the calming breath. I like that. Or even like the quickening, like breath of, um, I don't know, of desire and other things associated with the Venus and the way that breath is like intimately tied in with um, that as well. She took my breath away, that kind of right. experience. Like, oh, there goes the breath in the lungs. Yeah. Um, or breathtaking, saying that mm-hmm. somebody is breathtaking or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And Venus, whether. Uh, we're speaking of the goddess or the the planet is definitely breathtaking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I mentioned very quickly before we move on, just to touch on, because you already mentioned the other goddesses, but it's like we have Aphrodite, but then Aphrodite was tied in with some earlier goddesses mm-hmm. from Mesopotamia, which were um, Ishtar and Inanna, mm-hmm. um, and some of the mythology associated with them, which is kind of interesting if you trace it far back. And in terms of, um, yeah, just some of the, not just things they're associated with, but also the major religious component of some of the these very important and like widespread cults in the ancient world. And that may be where some of the religious portion is coming from in ancient authors like Valens that might be more prominent than compared to some later authors in like modern times. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Would you want to explore at all a little the relationship between the myth of Inanna, her descent into the underworld, and how it maps onto Venus's synodic cycle? Um, sure, that would be a great segue for showing like the synodic cycle diagram and just talking about that. So um, yeah, should we start with the diagram or start with the myth? Hmm. Let's start with the myth first. <laughs> okay. And then we can illustrate it with the diagram. Um, so I learned this from a few different sources. My first kind of deep exposure to the myth of Inanna was through an amazing psychological book called uh, Descent to the Goddess by Sylvia Brenton Pereira. And then with the connection to uh, Venus, I actually learned a lot of this from a, a really excellent lecture by the astrologer Shu Yap. And um, she gave a talk at the Astrology of Awakening conference in April about this. So I want to credit her for, for really teaching me about this. And um, But in uh, the Sumerian tradition, Venus, the uh, synodic cycle of Venus maps exactly onto the, the myth of Inanna's descent into the underworld. And it's a long myth, so we don't have to tell all of it. But she ma- she makes the decision to enter into the underworld to meet her dark sister, Arash Kigal. And Arash Kigal's husband has recently passed away. So this is why she's making this descent. And Inanna, who is known as the Queen of Heaven, sometimes she's called the Queen of Heaven and Earth, she comes to the entrance to the underworld adorned in her seven powers, which are symbolized by seven pieces of clothing, a crown and a number of other a robe and so on. Um, and those actually, those seven 
pieces of clothing also correlate with the seven chakras. And in her descent into the underworld at each gate, there's seven gates, the guardian of that gate has been given the instruction that she has to remove one of these items, therefore giving up this particular power of hers, whether it's her authority or with the third eye, her sight, all the way down to the root. And so each of these gates, she's stripped down to until she arrives naked and alone in the underworld. And here she encounters a panel of judges, as well as Arash Kigal, her sister, and they deem her to be guilty. Uh, and she is, her punishment for this guilt is to be killed and hung on a meat hook, very visceral. And so she left instructions in the upper world to, uh, if she didn't come back within a certain period of time for her, um, one of her servants to come look for her. And so this servant goes seeking help from the other deities for a long time, can't find anyone to help. Finally, uh, turns to Enki, who is Inanna's grandfather, who offers help, giving uh, a resurrecting potion to uh, two little insects who are small enough to uh, enter into the underworld unseen. And there's a whole connection with the underworld and, of course, the invisible phase of Venus. And so they, they come down, and when they arrive in the underworld, Ereshkigal is in labor pains. And in these pains, uh, there's no one with her. And so these two little beings sit with her. They hold space for her until she has given birth and moved through this pain. And she's so touched by their attention and their care that she says, what can I do? What can I offer in return? She's never been cared for in this way. And they say, we're actually here for Inanna. Can we take her back up? And so Ereshkigal agrees. And so they give her drops of this potion, one for each of the days that she is in the underworld or in her invisible phase. And she's reborn. And that rebirth, that moment aligns with when uh, the when Venus is exactly conjunct the sun at that uh, Kazemi point. And so then she's reborn and she's able to return. And But there's an agreement that she makes with Arash Kigal that she has to send someone in her place. And so when she comes home, she's feeling this kind of weight and responsibility. Who am I going to send down into the underworld in my place? And when she comes home, she sees her husband. And her husband has not been mourning her absence, missing her. He's off having affairs and flirtations. And she's like, him, he's the one going down into the underworld in my place. And um, yet another pairing of Venus and Mars, it, her husband is Mars. And so now it's time for his descent into the underworld to take her place. And so the phases, how they align, when Venus is in the morning star phase, that is the period of Inanna's descent into the underworld. And each conjunction of Venus to the, uh, to the waning moon, the waning crescent moon in the morning sky, uh, each conjunction is one of those seven gates leading down into the underworld where she's stripping off her powers and her adornments. 
And then the superior conjunction is um, when the, the, let's see, the superior conjunction, I believe, is the phase when she spends 50 days in the underworld or 50 days behind the sun or hidden, um, invisible. And then once she comes out of the underworld, she's reborn at the exact conjunction. And then her ascent out of the underworld is when uh, she becomes the evening star. And so each of those conjunctions now to the waxing moon is her gaining back each of her uh, adornments or each of her powers. So those, again, the moon Venus conjunction symbolizes the gates. Um, so again, I just, I really want to give credit to Shu Yap for that story and that mapping, um, because her research on that is uh, invaluable. Um, and I just found that story to be so compelling and how you, it's a myth, but it also, uh, really allows you to remember how these, these patterns work, these celestial patterns work and how all the alignments are timed. Yeah, it's really amazing how some of the <clears throat> how some of the ancient myths were tied into astronomical properties of different planets and were set up to um, evoke or to carry some of that knowledge and to sort of pass it on in different ways. Um, in this instance, really talking about the astronomical phases of Venus and how, due to its relationship with the sun, it does have these different phases where either it emerges. When it gets enough distance from the sun in a, in the morning, and you see it as a bright little twinkling star that rises an hour or two before the sun does uh, during different parts of the year, or alternatively, Venus in its evening star phase um, appears just after sunset and appears as this bright little white twinkling star for like an hour or two uh, just after the sun goes down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that whole cycle, by the way, it takes, uh, the synodic cycle is 584 days. And so Venus spends uh, 263 days or nine months in the morning star phase, and then 50 days invisible uh, in, in one of those conjunctions. I think it's the superior conjunction. That makes sense because Venus would be passing behind the sun. And then the uh, 263 days or nine months as the evening star before the inferior conjunction, which is very short. It's only eight days. Uh, and that's, that's the full, uh, cycle. Right. So what was the full, um, number of days? And that's, that's from one conjunction with the sun to another. That's the synodic cycle. How many days is that? 584 is the full okay. cycle. Yeah. Got it. So after it's like the, um, in terms of the swift moving planets, we have the moon that's extremely fast and it only um, goes around the entire zodiac in what, like a month. And then we have Mercury is the next fastest planet. And then after that, we have Venus. Yes. And I should differentiate Venus's orbit around the sun is 225 days, but the synodic cycle is 584 because that's taking into account our relative position on the earth um, in relationship to the sun and Venus. And so that 584 days is from, 
I guess that would be from superior conjunction to superior conjunction. So there's actually the inferior conjunction in between. Got it, right. Yeah. Because um, since due to what side of Venus that we're on, since Venus is the last inner planet, um, it, the conjunction with the sun can take place either on the closer side of the sun from us, or it can take place on the further side of the sun from us. Yeah. Actually, let, let me show a diagram that'll do a better job of illustrating that just because of the sequence of the planets where you have the sun at the center of the solar system, and then you have Mercury, and then you have Venus, and then you have Earth. So a conjunction between the sun and Venus from our perspective on Earth can either take place on the closer side to Earth, or it can take place on the opposite side of the sun, basically. Yeah. And the when it's on the opposite side of the sun, that superior conjunction, that mythically is when Inanna is in the underworld for those 50 days. And um, so that's really the uh, kind of core part of the myth. And this diagram um, or this image is really helpful too because we can see, picture ourselves there on the earth that Mercury and Venus, from our perspective, are never going to get that far from the sun. And so you're never going, going to get a Sun-Venus opposition or a, um, sorry, a, yeah, a Sun-Venus opposition or a Sun-Mercury square or something like that. They can't get out that far from our perspective. Right. So um, Venus actually never gets more than 48 degrees away from the sun in the zodiac before it turns retrograde or or direct. Right. Yeah. And and therefore we see that in relationship to um Mercury and Venus as well. They're never going to get more than a sextile apart. Um so that's they're always going to be in a harmonious relationship. They can't um be at a hard angle to each other. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting implications. And of course, that's partially where the domicile scheme comes from, where um, the domiciles of uh, this, of Venus and, and Mercury basically are adjacent to the sun in the, the sun and the moon, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, good. Well, I think we're getting a lot of good basics in. There's some other stuff we're sort of mentioning in passing about synodic cycles, but maybe we can save that for later in terms of like the eight-year cycle and the pentagram of, of Venus that it makes around the zodiac during the course of those successive cycles. Sounds good. Yeah, we can come back to them. Okay, cool. Well, let me pull up our next passage then, which um, it comes from the, we're going to jump forward from Valens several centuries to the ninth century astrologer Abu Mashar and his great introduction to astrology that was written in Arabic, probably in Baghdad, sometime around the middle of the ninth century. So around, let's say, like 850 CE or something like that. So this comes from the new translation that just came out in the past year. Uh, from Benjamin Dykes, who retranslated the text from Arabic. So it's titled Abu Mashar, The Great Introduction to the Science of the Judgments of the Stars. Hmm. Um, so here's a little passage I'm going to read from Ben's translation. Or actually, do you want to read it? I, maybe we should like trade off. Sure. I can you see it clearly? It. Uh, I think I can. And let's see, it just goes on to the next page a little bit. Yeah. So it's okay. just like the left side and then just the top paragraph in the right page. Perfect. 
right. As for Venus, her nature is cooling, wet, phlegmatic, temperate, a, a fortune. She indicates women, the mother, younger sisters, cleanliness, clothing, ornaments, gold and silver, graciousness towards close friends, conceit, vanity, haughtiness, boasting, the love of wealth and entertainment, laughter, adornment, joy, delight, dancing, playing horns, plucking the strings of the oud, weddings, perfume and good-smelling things, gentleness in composing melodies, playing backgammon and chess, idleness, casting of restraint, going too far in what is bad, buffoonery, occupying oneself with men and children in fornication, and every male or female fornication, or male and female singer, or one playing types of instruments, and much swearing of oaths and lying, wine, honey, drinking sweet intoxicants, having sex in various ways, as well as intercourse in the rear and lesbianism. And she indicates a love for children and a love of people and showing love towards them, tranquility towards everyone, tolerance, generosity, kindliness, liberality, freedom, a good character, beauty and handsomeness, ingratiation, reception, brightness, splendor, pleasantness of speech, the feminine, flirtation, passion, ridicule, wishing good health, strength of the body, but weakness of the soul, much flesh in bodies, an abundance of craving for everything, joy in everything, making demands for everything, being eager for it. And she indicates different types of clean, admirable crafts and works, stringing garlands and decorating them, wearing crowns, dyes and dyers, sewing, houses of worship, virtue, adhering to religion, performing devotions, justice, fairness, scales and measuring, a love of markets and being in them, business and selling good-smelling things. <laughs> nice. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So that mm. is our friend Abu Mashar from the ninth century, and now all of a sudden, we're talking about a, a much different cultural context for astrology where we've jumped from like second century Greco Roman society where Venus is Aphrodite. And now we're in like the middle of the ninth century in um, the heart of Baghdad in the newly established Islamic Empire. And Abu Mashar himself, I think, was originally like a, a religious scholar who got into a debate with a philosopher, Al Kindi. Who um, he was attacking for believing in astrology, and Al Kindi somehow was successful in getting him to like look into it himself. And then Abu Mashar became one of the most famous astrologers of the medieval and subsequent periods. Mm. Um, so, but you do see some of that coming through, I think, in a little bit in the text in terms of the different cultural um, perspectives and in terms of some of the ways that Venus is described. Astrologically, both in terms of of some positive things and what is viewed as positive in like ninth century um, Islamic or Arabic society versus some of the things that are viewed as negative, 
And that's actually an interesting component that comes through a little bit more in this text than I think compared to Valens is that uh, Abu Mashar does mention some things that he associates or, or are sort of like negative things that he's associating with Venus. Mm-hmm. Right. There's much more of a sense of this is a good expression, this is a negative expression. Uh, you do get a little bit of a sense of there's a judgment about this, there's a judgment about that. Um, sometimes they're right next to each other, though. So you're like, wait, do you think that's a bad thing or do you think that's a good thing? <laughs> right. And what would yeah. we think now about that? Exactly. As being, as being a good thing or being a, a problem. Right. And and sometimes it's like good things contrast with bad things. So it's like graciousness, close friends. Then it's like conceit, vanity, haughtiness, boasting, um, the love of wealth, but also of entertainment. And then it switches to like positive things again. It starts saying laughter, adorn, adornment, joy. So there's this it's almost a little bit more nuanced here than it was in Valens because it is acknowledging some of the potentially the downsides of Venus when certain things that maybe in a certain context are positive but could turn negative. So example, for example, um, vanity or conceit. Mm-hmm. So let's say Venus, you know, does represent like beauty and things related to beauty. And that can be fine in and of itself, but then in a certain context, it could be negative if it turns into like vanity or, or conceit or something like that. Definitely, yeah. You can. I, I love what you said that it's it is a bit more of a nuanced perspective, and there's more just detail in it too. Whereas in Valens, we have marriage. Here, we have all kinds of sexual acts and dynamics, and. Uh, that it's a recognition that Venus rules all of these things. And uh, so we can kind of whatever the cultural perspective on that might have been, uh, just a recognition of Venus is here. Venus is present in in all of this. Yeah, and I think that's important because one of the things I was noticing when I was reading like the um, Wikipedia entry for even Aphrodite, Mm. Um, where there were some things that like Valens left out that were associated with the goddess. Um, so it's it's like saying Aphrodite is an ancient Greek goddess associated with love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation. Um, so it's like some of those things are in Venus, but it also mentions um, at one point it says she was also the patron goddess of, of prostitutes. And that's something that comes through in some of the mythology that um, isn't as clear in Valens, but some of the things that related to, like Venus was connected with like sex and sexuality and all different manifestations of that in many different ways, including um, like sex workers or other people that were connected with with different um, manifestations of that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, and it is so much clearer coming through in Abu Mashar's writing that. Uh, you you know it's again if we look back at at Valens it, so much gets kind of wrapped up in just saying well Venus is marriage and um, all kinds of things can unfold in a marriage but that particular connection to to the sexual to um, pleasure and um, bodily pleasure and so on I thought it was interesting this strength of the body but weakness of the soul just. That was a an interesting kind of dichotomy that's brought up there, and um, just in in what context, I guess, strength of the body would be in a a good placement of Venus, but weakness of the soul could be present in that. Yeah, like a 
maybe a, there's a whole tension in ancient astrology that I'm working on an episode on hermeticism that I've mm. been wanting to do for a while, and I'll probably do it in the next month or two. But one of the the great tensions in like her, hermetic texts and the Gnostic texts in the ancient world was this tension between um, the body versus the spirit, and viewing the body and the physical incarnation as something that's fundamentally negative and dark, and that we're sort of our spirit is sort of like trapped here in the physical body, and our spirit is something from somewhere else that wants to escape back into mm-hmm. the. Um, non-earthly realms, and this sometimes comes through. I think in some traditional astrological texts, as associating and acknowledging Venus's association with the body and physical things and physical pleasures, and that being like a a property of life. But sometimes, from a religious or theological standpoint, that's viewed negatively because being um, attached to physical pleasures is something that's supposed to, they would view it as like distract you from either from your, your religious practices or from intellectual pursuits or what have you. Hmm. And in this, this same passage, it's interesting then that there can be that strength of the body, but weakness of the soul. But then there's this other connection to um, adhering to religion. For example, performing devotions, and that comes back to what we were talking about before too, like performing devotions. Even the word devotion really carries that element of like love, uh, the heart, and so on. But it's a devotion to um, the gods, or to God, or the divine, or the sacred. And, yeah, it's it's almost yeah. kind of similar to the distinction between like devotion to. Um, one's partner, one's spouse, mm. versus like the opposite, and I wonder if that's part of the connection there when it's talking about devotion and things like fidelity, for example. Right, and just all the ways that we can see Venus expressed, and maybe this is the the participatory element, or that you know, how do we uh, choose to engage with? How Venus is coming through in our lives? Is it going to go in in this devotional direction, or is it going to go more in a um, like a faithless or um, lust without love kind of direction? And right. um, the the more problematic sides of that, you know, when it when it comes to manipulation or lying, which are different things that were mentioned in that passage. Right. Um. Yeah, so let's see what else. Um, fairness, justice, like some of that is interesting, especially in terms of it also met, it's, it mentions those actually in a, in a line just after performing devotion. So it's like performing devotions, justice, fairness, scales and measuring, a love of markets and being in them. Um, and I thought that was interesting in terms of Venus's association with Libra, which is literally the sign of the scales um, and perhaps some connection there. Definitely, it's which came, which is informing which first. You know, is it Venus's relationship to justice, fairness, or is it Libra's relationship to that? And then it makes sense that Venus would be the ruler, right? Um, all right, let's see what else do we have. Um, generosity is a good one. Um, it mentions beauty and handsomeness. That's. Something, one of the interesting things. So, if Venus is said to signify beauty, um, one of the ways that that sometimes gets applied, going back to very basically traditional texts and delineations, is 
they would say that sometimes the placement of Venus is where, in a birth chart, is where a person will find um, beauty in some way or encounter the concept of beauty in their life in some way. And I think that's what's underlying some of the delineations, for example, that I think Ptolemy gives of, of Venus in the first house, which is said to signify a person's physical body and appearance. They would sometimes delineate that as um, well, the person then will be physically beautiful or physically attractive or striking in some way um, if they have like Venus on the ascendant or something like that. Mm, definitely, the something I've actually noticed with people who have Venus on the ascendant is that that their beauty, their kind of Venusian way of being, is. The, the first thing that people often notice about them, which very much fits the ascendant, but it even can kind of obscure seeing other parts of who they are. Um, and it's similar to, you know, when the sun is rising, all we can see is the sun on the horizon. Um, or with our discussion of Venus earlier, when you see Venus there on the horizon and it's dark out, everything else kind of fades away and that does that quality I have noticed with individuals who have Venus at the ascendant. You're just kind of like, wow, here's Venus. Venus has walked into the room. But then, and I think this can be a kind of painful side of that for individuals who have that placement, is sometimes the rest of their chart or the rest of who they are doesn't get seen as much. And they're like, wait, I'm I'm all these other things too. I mean, that can be applied to any planet on the ascendant. Um but just thinking of it particularly with Venus, where someone's beauty might obscure uh, you know, their, their intelligence or their kindness or their interest in horseback riding or archery or you know, whatever it is, um, that the wholeness of who they are isn't always seen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of the common idea that the ascendant is like what you see in what a person sees in like their first appearance of you or what first appearances are um, versus, you know, let's say somebody's sun sign or moon sign representing more of who they are internally or emotionally or, you know, their Mercury placement and how they communicate and think uh, and things like that. But, but sometimes things can get wrapped up in, especially in terms of superficial relationships with just um, first appearances. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And also with this discussion of, of Venus and beauty, one thing that I really find interesting when it comes to looking at planetary aspects, so alignments of other planets with Venus, is um, what individuals find beautiful and how they carry or express their individual beauty, depending on whether you know they have Venus in alignment with Saturn or Uranus or Neptune, or it, how much that changes the aesthetic, stylistic. Uh, taste and and expression, both physically, but also in terms of adornment. Yeah, like what is the what are the aesthetic? Because everybody has it's such a subjective thing. Like what a person finds beauty in, or what a person finds to be aesthetically appealing. Like different um, artists or or artwork as a observer, where you might go to like a museum and and you might really like a certain artist's style of painting. Um, versus you might not like another artist's style of painting. And so it comes down to that subjective notion of what a person finds appealing. And that's very much tied in with, I think, a uh, position of a person's Venus in their birth chart in different ways in terms of describing 
what appeals to them in some broader sense. Absolutely. Uh, I I mean, I, I'm certainly guilty of that where I'll find uh, something beautiful or be drawn to a particular art form or style if it reflects more what my Venus aspects are. And um, so, you know, as someone who has Venus Neptune, I'm really drawn to kind of a more ethereal aesthetic or something that, you know, like Art Nouveau. But then um, as a Venus Saturn person, I also really appreciate kind of more classical form, simplicity, uh, the um, kind of pared down aesthetic, but then that's also contradicted because I have Venus with Uranus and that likes the unusual or the unexpected or, um, you know, what uh, some might find eccentric or unique. And so, uh, and just being able to see those different kinds of aesthetic expressions in, in others is so fascinating to me. <laughs> Right, for sure. Um, as well as in terms of both what people like and also sometimes, um, even just studying the charts of different artists and seeing how their Venus placements might describe in different ways their art styles and what they end up, um, creating or the way in which they manifest and bring concepts of beauty into the world in terms of what their subjective conceptualization of beauty is. Absolutely. Yeah, I find this really fascinating when it comes to music. Um, I mean, all the arts, but it's um, music is great for teaching because you can play a song and someone can immediately get um, an archetypal kind of essence. And um, you know, there's there are so many extraordinary songs about uh, heartbreak, and um, you know, we most people I think go through heartbreak and in, in some time of life or other. Um, but there's a very special connection between Venus Saturn and kind of the heart, the heartbreak or the heartache and um the bitter sweetness of that. And I think of a song like uh by Adele, for example, who's born with Venus Saturn and um her song Someone Like You, which she wrote right after a breakup, it has um you know, if you listen to that song, every single line is just resonating with Venus Saturn kind of archetypal qualities and all the negations, Saturnian negations in it. But uh, there's this line, sometimes it lasts in love and sometimes it hurts instead. And how much that's kind of the Venus Saturn experience. Um, or, you know, another kind of heartbreak, if we think of uh, Janis Joplin's uh take another little piece of my heart. Now she's born with Venus Pluto. And so there's more of that kind of raw visceral intensity to that kind of pain and heartbreak where she's saying like, take a piece of my heart. Um, and then compare that to um, like Joni Mitchell or uh, Jeff Buckley, both born with Venus Neptune and how they both have these just exquisite angelic voices and uh, you, you can hear it in um, you know, any of Joni Mitchell's songs where it's like an angel is singing and um, or Jeff Buckley, especially his cover of Hallelujah, which is speaking, you know, singing to, to God, to the divine, to the sacred and this angelic voice. And the person who wrote that song, Leonard Cohen, was born with Venus Neptune also. Um, so anyway, just I could keep going down that path, but um, thinking about those different combinations with Venus and how 
uh, it gets expressed through through music, through lyrics, through vocal tone and musical quality and style. It's it's all there, but what's at the core? Venus. Mm -hmm. Right, definitely. Um, somebody I sometimes think about when it comes to this topic is um, Yoko Ono. Mm. Who has a like a Venus Saturn conjunction in Aquarius in the fifth house um, as the ruler of her ascendant, actually in a night chart, and just the way that she expresses um, her artistic tastes in a way that it's almost like to some people is is discordant or uh, in a way that's just very different compared to what the standard assumptions of like beauty or harmony are supposed to be. Mm. I think of that iconic image of her with uh, John Lennon, where he's curved around her in the fetal position, naked, and she's dressed all in black. And how the Venus Saturn dressing all in black—that's um, something that I've sometimes seen with Venus Saturn, where it can be like dressed in all black or gray or very kind of simple, pared-down colors. And um, yeah, how how she would often be dressed in black. Totally. And that brings up another, you know, thing in addition to to appearance and aesthetic and beauty, but also just Venus as a general significator of, of relationships and sometimes the way that either a person approaches relationships or sometimes some of the experiences that they have at different points in relationships. Um, for for her, of course, a very important and like characteristic thing in her life was that she she lost the love of her life at one point when he was. Um, murdered by like a crazy fan, um, and having that that Venus Saturn conjunction so close there in her birth chart, and just having that experience. Obviously, there's other stuff going on in her chart as well, but um, that's a whole topic in and of itself in terms of the experience of relationships and partnership, and sometimes marriage um, based on the situation and condition of Venus in the birth chart, as well as other placements like the seventh house or the ruler of the seventh house. Yeah. And I feel like I should say too, for those born with Venus Saturn, that while a correlation can be, you know, the, the death of the beloved, which very much fits Venus Saturn, it, you know, obviously does not have to play out that way. It can also be the long lasting, enduring relationship, or it can be the, um, the love that comes in late in life after waiting a long time. Uh, that's, that's another way that I've, I've seen that come through. So, um, while there is the heartbreak that the ending, the loss, uh, sometimes quite literally the, the death of the beloved, there can also be that long-term enduring commitment that's present with Venus Saturn as well. So it Definitely. doesn't have to go that way. Yeah. Good point. Um, and also, uh, sometimes, uh, working together or finding like pleasure and mm -hmm. work with one's partner could be a very good like Venus Saturn combination as well. Absolutely, and and creating a like a solid container for the relationship too. I feel like that um, can really meet some of those Venus Saturn needs of where Saturn instead of being uh, the barrier or the boundary between, and you know can see Venus Saturn in long distance relationships, and um, but it can also be that kind of um, the solid container around a relationship that can hold it, that that can um, be relied upon, like a foundation in the relationship. Mm, mm -hmm. Definitely, um, the, the marriage yeah. vow until death do us part is a great Venus Saturn <laughs> statement, really. 
Right. Um, um, yeah. yeah. Well, that, and that reminds me that Saturn is sort of exalted in Libra and has its exaltation mm. in Libra, and that Venus, in some way, is able to refine and sort of um, get rid of some of the the less negative or the rough around the edges components of Saturn. And I think that's one of the reasons why mm. Saturn is thought to be exalted in Libra. Mm. Um, and the two, sometimes in their highest expressions, can do very well together by creating a bond that is very long-lasting and, and permanent. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of that uh, exaltation and uh, how they really can work so beautifully together, even if they seem to be contradictory. <laughs> right. Um, and let's see, so Saturn can sometimes indicate delays, so sometimes mm. there can be like and things that are long-lasting, so there can sometimes Venus-Saturn combination can uh, indicate like a delay in relationships or a delay in um, sort of finding the one in some sense. Um, another thing, because Saturn has to do with like time and age, and one of the other funny and often mentioned um, Venus-Saturn combination components is sometimes like age disparities in relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a very common and like interesting manifestation to see when um, Venus Saturn is like prominent in a birth chart. Definitely, yeah. It's um, often the the love of the older, uh, like the older partner, being a consistent expression there, or um, whether it's waiting a long time to find uh, a partner, or falling in love with someone and waiting a long time to even be with them. I've I've seen that play out. Whether it's you know, six years or ten or thirty, in you know one case, and yet uh, being able to see those relationships manifest in in the fullness of time, and um, being all the richer for the maturity, you know, Saturn relating to maturity that is brought to the relationship. Then, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and. Um, a lot of the ancient texts also, I think there's just something about Venus-Saturn combinations where it's sometimes viewed as something that's challenging or difficult or what would be challenging compared to a conventional relationship, especially in the traditional text because they didn't have Uranus. So sometimes Saturn would almost act as a stand-in for Uranus as that which is unconventional in some way or that would Create a complication that's an obstacle, but sometimes it's a it's a surmountable difficulty of some sort. Um, so, like an age disparity, for example, can sometimes be viewed as something that can be like a problem or or an area where people are coming at a relationship from very different perspectives. If they're like I don't know more than let's say a Venus cycle of eight years apart or something like that, but it's something that when they work towards, perhaps it's something that can be overcome or. Some of the ancient texts also mention um, being in a relationship with somebody who has a had a disability or something like that is a very common Venus-Saturn delineation in ancient texts for different reasons, um, which I always thought was interesting from a cultural standpoint, just in terms of why they were mentioning that delineation so so regularly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the um, that that just makes a lot of sense in, in that particular context as well, where um, there would be that kind of caretaking or nurturing element in, in that relational dynamic. Right, yeah. Um, all right, so, so we've gotten into talking about like planetary combinations, which I think is a really good um, thing and good idea. And we focused on Venus-Saturn. 
Um, Mercury and Venus, I talked a little bit about in the last episode on Mercury, where it has to do with um, ways in which one could articulate beauty, <clears throat> which is Venus through like a mercurial component, which is usually things of like communication. And so I cited, for example, different poets that have um, Venus Mercury conjunctions and express language or communicate in an artistic or aesthetically appealing fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was looking into different Mercury Venus figures, also coming across different poets, and uh, it makes sense. You know, it's the word as art form. Uh, the use of language in a beautiful way. I thought it was interesting that if if the birth data that we have for Shakespeare is correct, that uh, Shakespeare would have had a Mercury-Venus sextile, and then Venus in a hard aspect to all three of the outer planets. So a conjunction with Neptune, an opposition to Uranus, and a T-square with Pluto. And so you have the Mercury Venus, you know, it's the poet's aspect, but then with all three of the outer planets, you just see the uh the breadth and depth and complexity and heights and uh uh complexities of uh Shakespeare's plays coming in that, you know, such an extraordinary artist who's been so celebrated. Of course, uh, he, he would have to have a complex Venus <laughs> to go along with that. Yeah, for sure. Or um, I think the one I often cite is like T.S. Eliot, who had a Venus-Mercury conjunction in Libra right on the ascendant um, in their birth chart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so that's pretty straightforward. I think in terms of Venus-Mercury combinations, um, what are some other combinations of planets that would be good ones to just touch on really quickly? Well, I mean, if we look at the the sun and the moon, if we kind of dip back to our luminaries, um, the you know I was looking into a number of different figures who just in my archives who have sun Venus conjunctions and notice certain themes around people who kind of just radiate that sense of um, either love or beauty um, and. You know, so like Oprah has Sun Venus, uh, Jane Fonda has Sun Venus, Leonardo DiCaprio has Sun Venus, uh, and Whitney Houston, Coco Chanel. I mean, I'm kind of just pulling some random samples that kind of jumped out to me. Uh, but something with the sun is the one of the expressions of the sun is it's what we not just identify as, but what we name ourselves, what we call it ourselves. And so Venus Williams is Sun Venus. And I thought, well, that's so fitting that her actual name, solar identity is Venus, and she has a Sun Venus conjunction. Um, just like Freddie Mercury has a Sun Mercury conjunction and how that comes directly into the name. Um, and then in terms of Moon Venus, just the archetypal expression of Moon Venus really tends to have, we were talking about sweetness earlier. Moon Venus might be the sweetest of all aspects that um, the expression of love and connection is coming through the emotions in a really nurturing, connecting, caretaking way. And some of the figures 
who have moon Venus that I was thinking about. Like Mr. Rogers has moon Venus. He actually has moon Venus Mercury. Uh, it's a triple conjunction. And so that, that sweetness in relation to children, the moon being a symbol of children, um, that like love of children, but then with Mercury in there, there's the educational piece as well. Um, really loving communication. Oh, great. Perfect. Yeah. I and mean, it's, exactly. It's all, it's all in Pisces. That's great. It's all in Pisces. Right. Now we can bring in the, the exaltation too of, um, of Venus. Hmm. And he actually has Taurus rising. So Venus is the, the ruler of the ascendant. Beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, the sun there in Pisces too. So he was, he was one person I thought of that really carries that kind of moon Venus, uh, sweetness and nurturance and care. Um, also thought of Paul McCartney who has so many just very sweet, almost innocent love songs. I want to hold your hand. <laughs> silly little, silly little love songs. Um, you know, so many of the extraordinary lyrics in the, uh, the Beatles catalog. Um, Michelle Obama was someone else who came to mind with Moon Venus uh, and her focus as well on children, that her time in the as first lady in the White House, that a lot of her campaigns focused on um, on children and on food, and that that's bringing in kind of the lunar, but in relation to to Venus as like expressions of love um, as well. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's a good one. Moon and Venus, and her focus was on like what you eat, and and especially like um, what we were feeding uh, children in public schools, and improving the like n nutritional value of public school meals. Mm. And that's a great like Moon Venus manifestation, just in terms of um, you know Venus is nurturing, and also the Moon is like the body, and mm -hmm. and questions of like what is nurturing or what is Healthy and what is, um, you know, going to nurture and help a person grow uh, over the course of their early life. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, those are some of the the figures I thought of with Moon Venus and um, and also coming back to what we were talking about before with gender. How like Mister Rogers is a really great example of a like a lunar and Venusian um, man. Who's kind of expressing that nurturance and care for children in a um, a way that's it's both maternal and masculine at the same time, if that makes mm. sense. Right. Um, yeah. So I just thought he was a great example of that. Yeah, I like that um, Mercury Venus conjunction in Pisces in his chart because he was very like soft spoken. And mm -hmm. the just the speaking style was very um, soft, but also just um, encouraging and um, helpful. And that's like a really good sort of very, very good um, example to use of of I guess partially a Pisces stellium, but also just Mercury Venus not just being something that's aesthetically appealing, but that's also um, soft in some way and. Um, can be helpful or or supportive or or nourishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's see. So then we have uh, Venus with Mars, and we obviously discussed that polarity at length. Um, 
I mean, the often charts that I'll see that expressed in are it's where Venus as art form is brought into motion or into action or to life through Mars. And so whether that's like dancers or singers, musicians, performers, um, graceful athletes as well. Um, and, you know, in terms of musicians, like Bruce Springsteen is a great example, someone who really has that kind of Martian edge, but it's coming through um, his music, his art form, or Neil Young. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is, uh, if, if you're familiar at all with the uh, Broadway singer, Adina Menzel, um, she's probably best known for uh, being the voice of Elsa in Frozen, um, but she has such a powerful voice and how uh, Mars can kind of give that loudness to the voice. And we, we saw in one of the um, description, I think it was Abu Mashar talking about sweet singing. And, but with Venus, Mars, it's like, loud, powerful, forceful singing that really kind of carries uh, with strength. So um, yeah, she she was someone who came to mind. Um, on the athletic side, uh, Billie Jean King, who the tennis player, who um, was the woman who, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the man she beat in a match in the 70s, but it was like this really breakthrough feminist moment. And she has Venus Mars. Um, and she was known to uh, like grunt on the uh, the tennis court, I almost said the battlefield, <laughs> um, with with each uh, each time she would hit the ball. And there was a film made a few years ago with um, Emma Stone playing her uh, called Battle of the Sexes. And even in the uh, the title of that, they show like the Venus Mars uh, symbols of you know the battle of the sexes and this kind of war between men and women playing out on the tennis court and how she was such a kind of breakthrough feminist symbol in that time, and that she has the Venus Mars alignment, which I'm sure no one making the film knew. <laughs> um, so yeah, she's another example I thought of with that dynamic. I forgot we hadn't mentioned that, but for the symbols of Venus and Mars, and that those became like in the 20th century the generic symbols for men and women, like Venus for women and and Mars for men. Mm -hmm. um, which somebody pointed out that that association was relatively recent um, on Twitter recently. Although it is interesting that I'm not sure how recent it is necessarily, because um, Venus traditionally would have been associated with with women. Um, or uh, femininity versus Mars being associated sometimes with men or with whatever was conceptualized as masculinity. Right. Uh, it's interesting to hear that just as a kind of, um, not as a planetary glyph, but just as a symbol for um, like a bathroom sign or something that they would be used. And now we're in a moment where that's breaking down again and we can put Venus right. on all bathroom doors and we can put Mars on all bathroom doors. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Well, and it's interesting that that's one of the ways that astrology permeates our culture still in, mm -hmm. in different ways, and it has influenced it sometimes in ways that you don't initially realize or are imperceptible until you start um, studying astrology and realizing where some of these things come from. Mm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Something um, that's leapt the walls, you could say. Yeah, exactly. 
And really quickly before I forget, there's also um, associations with the days of the week, and Venus is associated with Friday. And I forgot I mentioned I meant to mention that because you mentioned one of the gods associated with Venus, and that's where we get the name Friday from, right? Mm, yes, Freya, Friday. Um, and there's actually there are two Norse goddesses who both seem to carry elements of Venus. Uh, Freya is the one that I've most associated because she is the um, the goddess of love and war. She rides to a chariot pu pulled by two cats. Um, Inanna, by the way, her her steed, her mount is a lion, which I thought was great. Um, but the other one in the Norse is Frigga. And the Fry of Friday, I'm actually not even sure if it's from Freya or from Frigga. Um, but Frigga is like the queen of the gods. And so would be a very different character, but would be somewhat comparable to Hera or uh, Juno in the Greco-Roman pantheon. Okay, awesome. So, yeah. Here's a little mm. diagram that just shows the seven-day week, which is you know the traditional week of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and um, this seven-day week actually comes from, or the reason we have a seven-day week is because there were um, each of the days was originally associated with each of the planets, and um, there's a whole interesting story there in terms of where that comes from in in Greco-Roman society and things like that, but. Um, for those that are not familiar with that, just for the purpose of this, Venus is the planet that's associated with Friday. Hmm. I always like to think, what do you think the first Monday was like? Like we're right. implementing this now. <laughs> uh, the first Monday, the first Friday to unfold. <laughs> yeah, I often wonder when the counting started because it's been going on for so long now. This is something that's been in place for over 2,000 years and it's wild to think about something that can be passed down that consistently for, for over 2,000 years now. Absolutely. And even that the names of the days of the week, as we have them translated into English, I should say, um, that we have multiple pantheons coming together. Some are uh, speaking to the, the Greek, some are to the Norse. Um, yeah, it's just kind of amazing how all these different cultural threads came together. Yeah, and some of them are still clear, like the Sun and Sunday, of course, or Saturn and Saturday. Um, but others have been lost or, or are a little bit more obscure, at least in English. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Moon Monday, <laughs> that one's a clear one too. Yeah. Mm. Um, all right, so back to our discussion. Oh, right, we were going through planetary combinations. Um, maybe we should finish that and then. Move on to our next um, astrologer, next excerpt. Perfect. Well, if we leave Venus with Mars, then because we can look at Venus with Jupiter. And, um, you know, I, I did find that a lot of the qualities that I would associate with a Venus Jupiter combination, a lot of those both felt present in these descriptions of Venus. Maybe that's that's just the it's the marriage of two benefics, how those those two energies come together, where it's very um, luxurious and indulgent, and um, you know the the focus on uh, 
the the finer things in life, the opulence and the astrologer Matthew Stelsner, I've heard him call Venus Jupiter the weekend in Paris aspect. And I think mm. that's such a great description where you know it's the it's the beautiful hotel room and the bouquet of bright, beautiful, huge flowers and um fine art and good food and good wine and uh, creamy sauces and rich desserts and lovely company and and so on. So that's um that's my feeling around uh, Venus Jupiter. Hmm. Yeah, and I think you mentioned um, like Beyonce as somebody with a Venus Jupiter conjunction, although it's tied in with like a wider yeah. stellium in in the sign of Libra. Yes, she has she has such a powerful chart, um, and the Venus Pluto is tighter. I mean, she is really a Venus. Um, yeah, the whole stellium: Mercury, Saturn, Jupiter, Venus, Pluto at the ascendant. Um, but there's a quality with Venus Jupiter where someone kind of glows they radiate um there's kind of this golden element uh to the beauty and i feel like she's she's a figure that really carries that in a, in an extraordinary way um she's got that plutonic power as well um very much in in the mix with the venus jupiter i mean you know jupiter pluto that combination with venus is um it's such an elevated power and the way that she carries that you know being the um the queen of r&b and um just it, like her song um brown skin girl which is such a celebration of beauty and um of the beauty of dark skin and how um if if you watch the music video for that song you just see her, you know, Jupiter is celebration. And um every single image in that that music video is a celebration of beauty. And um just you can see that throughout her her catalog. Um, but that's that's a particular favorite of mine because there is this um really centering of um of a beauty that has been, here's where the Plutonic element comes in, a beauty that has been culturally oppressed and uh, denigrated. And the song is instead celebrating that. And she's singing about um, her daughter's nappy curls and um, that, you know, her skin is like pearls. And I just, the Venus Jupiter element there, where um, just elevating that uh, beauty to such a an extraordinary height. And so I think that's one of what Venus Jupiter is so capable of. It's just, it's the grandeur of beauty, art, um, of love as well. I mean, the there's speaking more generally, I mean, Venus Jupiter is the it's the open heart. And um it's the kind of generosity of love that that is present there. Um Another figure I think of with Venus Jupiter is um if if you're familiar with the song Higher Love that was originally written by Steve Winwood, he has um he has Moon Venus with Jupiter and Neptune. And uh that idea of higher love, like searching for a higher love, you get the transcendence of the Venus Neptune, but you also get um that kind of expansion, a different kind of higher love with the Venus Jupiter, and he has both. Um, and the song was 
we want to dip in some Venus Neptune here too. The song was covered by Whitney Houston, who is a sun Venus figure, but she's also Venus Neptune. And so she sings her version of Higher Love, um, which has a um it, it has a different quality to it for sure than the original by Steve Winwood, but you can both see in both that they're kind of carrying this, this Venus Neptune, the sense of like a transcendent or sacred or divine love in their um, portrayals of the song. And um, just to take it one layer further, there is a, uh, a remix version that came out in 2019, remixed by um, the, the house DJ Kygo, who has Venus Jupiter. Um, and you hear the Venus Jupiter in a lot of his music. He's also Uranus Neptune. So there's kind of that that dazzling element there. But there's a very uplifting quality to how he creates his his music. And I think that fits the Venus Jupiter as well. Like you feel happy, you feel joyful, you kind of it's upbeat. And so he does this great remix of uh Whitney Houston singing Higher Love. And um and so kind of putting it all together, her voice is carrying the Venus Neptune, his remix is carrying the Venus Jupiter, and that all adds back up to Steve Winwood's natal Venus Jupiter Neptune, who originally wrote the song. Um I just loved kind of seeing that that chain of archetypal patterns with right. around that one song. I also just really love that one song. <laughs> Yeah, I wish in episodes like this I could play like an excerpt from it because that mm -hmm. would be kind of nice to to hear it sometimes. And I know sometimes that's a good way to connect with um, some of these things in terms of music is to actually hear it and have that that sort of visceral experience. Well, maybe we can recommend the the different songs that have been mentioned in this. Uh, can send the the listeners and the viewers off to uh, watch or listen to these various songs after to get a more encompassing uh musical visual experience you know whether it's the beyonce song or um this remix of higher love or you know some of the others that we mentioned in venus saturn or venus pluto <laughs> yeah um and venus jupiter the two benefics is is traditionally viewed as like a, a positive or a lucky aspect um lucky in different ways um one of the ways that that's sometimes been Reinterpreted or or pointed out in in modern times. Just thinking back to your first example of that about like the hotel room, but <laughs> one of the downsides can be like um, overindulgence is sometimes <laughs> like stated to be a potential downfall with Venus or a potential challenging point where it can have like negative manifestations. And that was one of the things that we started to see, I think, a little bit of in in Abu Mashar. Absolutely, yeah. Overindulgence. Um, spending too much money can definitely mm. be an issue there, um, right. or coveting, coveting things that you can't maybe afford or don't really need, um, where that Jupiterian side, it becomes too much. Mm. And whenever there's a, either I have a personal transit of Venus, Jupiter, or it's in the world transits, I always find that I'm like, oh, how did I just spend all that money? All right, there's there's that alignment. Um, right. Or that makes me think also of uh, being like overly generous, for example, let's mm, say. Yeah. Yeah. That's another good example. Overly generous. And then suddenly you realize you can't sustain that. Um, right. The bubble bursts. Mm. Mm. Okay. So that's Venus, mm. Jupiter, um, Venus, Saturn, we've talked about. And that can be, that's an, an interesting contrast, of course, because Saturn is the opposite of Jupiter in many ways. And so that could be the other side of that, which would be like being overly, um, let's say stingy, could be mm -hmm. like a Venus-Saturn 
um, downfall type component. Certainly, yeah, yeah, where it's um, it's kind of the Scrooge figure of withholding uh, the gift or withholding uh, the the money owed or something like that. Right. Um, whereas maybe like the positive manifestation or more constructive would be like getting the thing after you've completed the task or something like that. Totally. Or something, something of value, because Venus relates to what we value, something of value that endures through time. Mm -hmm. And, um, that I've, I've seen Venus Saturn individuals will be drawn toward beautiful things that are old, like antiques or family heirlooms, something that's been passed down and maybe not having very much in the home. Um, the Marie Kondo is a great example of kind of stripping Venus Saturn, stripping things away. So you only mm. have what gives you joy. Yeah. And so aesthetic beauty through simplicity or through taking things down to just the bare essentials. And then really taking care of those essentials or really making mm. sure those essentials are um, beautiful and practical. That feels like a very kind of Venus Saturn dynamic too. Yeah. Mm. So form and function as mm. to like components. I was thinking about that also when you were mentioning Mars, because mm. you were talking about how does it look, but also what does it do? And that notion of like doing is more of a Mars thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. How do you um, put that into action? How do you put that into motion for sure? Right. Um, okay. So we're getting to some really good Venus Saturn stuff. I'm not sure if there's anything else to mention there before we move on to the next combinations. Well, I think because we naturally dove into this by talking about Venus Saturn, um, maybe it is Saturn's nature, isn't it, to either be cut off short or to go on way too long about it, right. <laughs> taking too much time. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's see. So Venus Uranus combinations you mentioned in passing, um, mm -hmm. but sometimes Uranus can be like that, which is unique or sort of eccentric or avant-garde. Mm -hmm. um, so Venus-Uranus combinations can relate to that in terms of a person's aesthetic interests. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's uh, in terms of like contemporary artists or musicians. Someone who comes to mind for me is Lady Gaga, um, mm. and how much she has really experimented with like her clothing, with her style. Uh, and that she she takes eccentric to the edge of, um, you know, to the edge of unusual, and uh, you know whether it's showing up in a, a meat dress or in just something. Venus Uranus is like, it's an expression of beauty or style or taste that has leapt beyond what you could even conceive of someone would create or do. Mm. Um, and there can be this kind of dazzling side of it as well with, with Venus Uranus where um, like it's unexpected or sudden. Um, Katy Perry is another example of a Venus Uranus person who's brought like a lot of unusual style into her performances or into her um, videos. Uh, even like her song Firework, which came out about 10 years ago, and then she performed again at the US inauguration this year, um, where the the firework is this kind of Uranian bursting, but it's it's beautiful. It's it is an art form. And and her song um, in the original video of it, there's actually uh, fireworks bursting forth from from the heart, 
And, and there's something orgasmic about it as well, which I think fits the Venusian piece here too. Yeah, she's another one with an extraordinary stellium. <laughs> Yeah, well, Katy Perry's my like time time twin because she was born like a week mm. before me. Um, oh wow! So <laughs> I pre yeah. In another life, I always joke I could have been Katy Perry, and it's like a recurring joke on the podcast. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next life. But it's also interesting. Like her first song, I remember when she first got really big, just in terms of that Venus Uranus conjunction, um, and. But it was for that song. It was like 2008 or something like that. But it was for the song like I, I kissed a girl and I liked it, which mm. at the time was kind of somewhat edgy, especially because she right. was like coming from being a Christian singer, and it was like 2008, and even you know presidents like Obama and Biden at the time in the 2008 election were officially like against same-sex marriage and would only change their minds publicly four years later during the 2012 election. So it's interesting, you know, seeing somebody like her um, initially become very well known through expressing um, a different take on relationships that, let's say, went against the grain in in what was the established norm up to that point. Yeah. Wow. We really have come far in the Uranus Pluto era, haven't we? What a accelerated human evolution has taken place. It's amazing. Well, and that's actually an issue, even when it comes to some astrological texts that are a few decades old, is that sometimes there's a whole discussion I think I had um, with Christopher Renstrom in a very early episode of the Astrology Podcast, which is that some um, astrological texts from like the 60s and 70s associated Uranus and like Venus-Uranus um, aspects with uh, same-sex relationships. But we had a whole discussion about whether that was because, whether that was like an inherent property or if it was just because Venus Uranus aspects are supposed to represent something that's different compared to whatever the cultural norm is at the time. And whether that would continue to be true, that that, that would be true, or whether that would only be true contextually, like 40 or 50 years ago or something like that, but that it sort of ceases to be as relevant. As society sort of like grows and changes, I mean that that's so relevant to Uranus placements in general because they seem to express through whatever is going to be cutting edge for the culture at that time. And so, I, yeah, I can see how that would be valid in that time, but you know, no longer necessarily being applicable. And now Venus Uranus, like a baby born. Now with Venus Uranus, that's going to be expressed totally differently. But I'm sure they will find how to um, how to love in a way that nobody expected, um, or how to express their their beauty or their style in a way that uh, is different than than ever came through before. Right, mm -hmm. or uniqueness is like another good term for like Uranus and Venus Uranus aspects. And there's something being unique in some way about. Not just um, the aesthetics, but also relationships in a person's life. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Uranus also speeds things up, and it can be sometimes very quick and very um, unstable. I think Uranus sometimes has a has a reputation for, and sometimes I know Venus Uranus combinations in modern astrology can have a reputation for things that um, spring up very quickly. Uh, but sometimes don't have as much long-term staying power as, let's say, like a Venus-Saturn aspect. Right. 
yeah, with Venus, Uranus, and relationship, um, you know, if it is part of a, a if someone is in a long term committed relationship and has Venus, Uranus, there can often be the need for um, just new kinds of experiences or excitement to be shared within the relationship so that um, things don't get stale. Like routine can be within relationship can be very dull or very boring for the Venus Uranus person. And um, so being able to adventure together, being able to do different things and um, try new things, whether that's, you know, sexually or creatively or in terms of travel or, um, or having more independence, more freedom within the relationship, um, whether that's from the relationship or within the relationship, obviously is going to depend on that particular person and their relational dynamics. But yeah, really uh, recognizing that that's an aspect that doesn't necessarily want to be confined or isn't comfortable with that in a relationship. Yeah, that's a great uh, the desire for freedom and freedom of movement within in relationships, mm -hmm. whatever that means relative to that person or like societal norms or whatever that means for that person, that just being sort of tantamount to them is just the notion of freedom in their relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, great. Um, all right. I think that's good for Venus, mm -hmm. Uranus, um, Venus, Neptune. I know you mentioned briefly in passing already, right? Mm, yeah, Venus, Neptune. That aesthetic um, or way of relating. I mean, it's it, it is very much the romantic idealist, and um, that there's a uh, there's a sacredness i think that can be brought in to an understanding of love or an understanding of romance it's like a longing for the fairy tale romance or um the idealized lover or beloved and you know with that some of the shadow side of neptune can be illusion or delusion confusion where you can you can project an ideal or you can project your own soul or the divine onto the onto the beloved, um, which can sometimes be devastating, shattering for the Venus-Neptune person going through that experience. Um, right, like so so idealizing a person, but maybe prematurely and not seeing them for what they are. And then when that illusion is shattered, there being a sense of, um, of not taking it very well. Yes, exactly. Like, oh, the having to see the human flaws of the beloved. And it, I think it can go the other way too, where um, the Venus Neptune person might be more likely to merge or flow into being the ideal of the person they're with. And so then they're not seen either necessarily. Mm. Um, and, and then there's this recognition of uh, maybe having diluted themselves or diluted the other in order to fit this perfect, exquisite, angelic image. Um, now that's kind of jumping in with some of the shadow side, but I mean, it also can be uh, a, you know, a, a kind of love that, like we we're speaking about with the song, like a higher love, a transcendent love, bringing in um, the the sacred, the religious, the spiritual into relationship, um, and seeing that as as kind of its highest value. Um, Aesthetically, I mean, this really can come through in terms of uh, the like an ethereal or otherworldly or transcendent quality 
One of my favorite examples of a Venus Neptune person is J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And you can see the Venus Neptune expressed in um, in the elves, for example. Um, and he has it in this beautiful grand trine with the uh, the Neptune Pluto conjunction uh, at the the top, and then that very rare conjunction, and then uh, grand trine to Saturn. And he was someone, Venus Saturn, who waited uh, agonizingly for the woman that he loved, and then they were together up until her death, and he passed just two years later. But he had this very mythic view of her, which is more of the Venus Neptune, and um, and you see that in the the romances in his stories, which interestingly for a Venus Pluto person, they're not um, they're not very visceral, or he doesn't he's kind of known for not having uh, you know, sex or anything like that in his stories, but you get more of the Venus Neptune kind of transcendent love, sacred love, um, expressed in, in his stories. And, um, but very much that aesthetic too. If anyone who's, uh, connected to the world of Middle Earth, um, and especially the elven realms, that's Venus Neptune or, um, a fairy tale aesthetic where it's like fairies, mermaids, uh, sylphs, nymphs, butterflies, uh, that, that all kind of carries that Venus-Neptune element, I think. Yeah. So Venus-Neptune has more of an, an idealistic or sometimes spiritual or like transcendent quality. And that's a really funny point because so he has a very close Venus-Neptune trine in this chart between Venus at nine Aquarius versus uh, Neptune at six Gemini. But that's a really funny contrast because that is commented on a lot recently, especially in contrast with more recent like fantasy writers like um, uh, George Martin and the Game of Thrones and being very much more focused on more, let's say, Venus-Mars type um, writing of like sex and sexuality and that being much more front and center of a focus versus Venus-Neptune, which is much more um, of a transcendent like non-material quality. The really opposites there, where Tolkien has the grand trine with Venus, Saturn, Saturn also kind of more the conservative view on it. Um, Venus, Saturn, Neptune, and and Pluto there as well. Um, he certainly brings the Plutonic in just in other forms throughout the Lord of the Rings, where um, it's uh, the you know very much showing up in terms of the mythic expression of you know the Dark Lord and all of that. Could talk forever about that since that's my area of expertise. Right. But um, contrasting Tolkien to Martin, who has a Venus Mars Pluto T square, I believe. Yes. Um, Here so it is. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> he's actually Taurus rising, so that Venus is actually ruling the ascendant, but it's conjunct Pluto. It's a very closely square Mars in Scorpio, which is at eleven degrees of Scorpio, squaring Venus at twelve uh, right. Leo. So not a not a T square as I. Um, but yeah, Venus Pluto conjunction square Mars, totally see that in his style of writing, and and then of course the films that have been or the the series that was made based on that, mm -hmm. um, quite a contrast for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. All right. So let's see. So it's Venus Neptune, and also just a, a tremendous Venus Neptune as being a tremendous, um, wealth of creativity and the yeah. ability to like create entire. Worlds, um, hmm. yeah. I think I think that's another good manifestation of Venus Neptune, and to bring something 
otherworldly or transcendent um, into this world through creative and artistic expression yeah. as a really core Venus-Neptune um, concept. Absolutely. I mean, Neptune as imagination, imagination itself, and um, or the idea of like an imaginal realm uh, as a kind of intermediate or transcendent realm that we can experience, um, not physically, not in that tangible way, but through um, meditative practices or through spiritual or religious practices that can take us to those places. And then art, Venus as art being the translator of those visions, those dreams, those fantasies into this realm in, a, in uh, an exquisite form. Another example of a, a Venus-Neptune person, actually this kind of covers several of our different combinations, is the romantic poet John Keats. And he has a stellium of Sun, Mercury, Venus, Neptune. And he said in one of his letters, there's a holiness to the heart's affections. And um, that that is Venus, Neptune. There's the holiness to the heart's affections. Um, and you can also, on his tombstone, was it was written the words, um, here lies one whose name is as writ in water. And you can see the the sun, the reference to the name again, um, Mercury, the writ, you know, but as in water, that uh, the Neptunian it, ephemeral just passes by, it fades back into the all, the everything, um, the oneness that Neptune is. I love that. Um, all right, and the very last combination that we haven't touched on is Venus-Pluto uh, combinations. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite example of um, I mentioned Janis Joplin. You know, take another little piece of my heart. That song, by the way, she didn't write. That was written by Irma Franklin, the older sister of Aretha Franklin. Mm. Irma Franklin also has Venus Pluto. So uh, the writer of the song and then the most famous singer of the song both have Venus Pluto. But wait, Aretha um, does. Um, Irma Franklin, her Irma, older okay. sister, yeah, has Venus Pluto, and she wrote that song. Um, which Janis Joplin sang. Uh, but probably my favorite example of Venus Pluto is uh, Frida Kahlo. And she has Venus uh, Pluto square to Saturn. And the whether it's, you know, seeing it through her art, which like Venus Pluto is, it's intense, it's extreme, it's raw, it's visceral, but it's also beautiful. It's also artistic. Um, it's like Venus with Mars, Venus with Pluto, I think really carries um, that deeply erotic expression. She had such an intense dynamic relationship with uh, Diego Rivera and you know both artists, um, both heartbreakers. <laughs> Um, and uh, both, you know, having relationships, affairs outside their marriage, you know, deeply um, intense dynamics, I think really fits the Venus-Pluto element. And then how she painted her, um, her pain and experience. And this, you know, it speaks to the Venus-Saturn as well, you know, physical pain that she was in, kind of being confined into, into her body after the, uh, the bus accident she was in as a young woman. Um, but yeah, I mean, just when we sit and look at her artwork, which is often so 
just exposing and raw and visceral. Um, I, I, there's one painting of her. Um, she she painted a, a number of paintings around her miscarriage, and I think there's one also, if I'm remembering correct correctly, for birthing herself, and um, just that uh, the experience of birth, um, the cycles of birth, sex, and death, the death rebirth mystery. Um, th these are all expressions of Pluto, and putting that into art, um, finding the beauty of that. Uh, even when that beauty is raw and messy and sometimes even like disgusting biological, that's very much, a, I think, a Venus Pluto uh, expression. But it's so, it's so deep. It's so um, kind of primal love, um, love that that cuts to the core. Yeah, and and just intensity in Venus already being about desire and attraction, and and Pluto. Just taking whatever it touches to the utmost extreme, which can be like in well, let's say a positive manifestation in like literature could be like the like Romeo and Juliet um, type situation where you're just like willing to die for a person in let's say a romantic sense of just um, being willing to take things to that extreme. Um, but then also the the negative manifestation can sometimes be something similar in terms of taking things too extreme or the obsessive or sort of compulsive um, component, which can sometimes manifest in relationships in a more, um, let's say, negative way of, of being overly obsessed or unwilling to let go uh, in, in some way. Yeah, absolutely. The possessive element uh, that, that Pluto could bring in or that, as you said, obsessive um, expression as well uh, definitely can there can certainly be problematic sides of Venus Pluto, um, and there can be such, uh, you know, deep, extraordinary, transformative sides when it's held in a in a container. Um, that mutual transformation through love, that impulse to to go really deep with another person. Right. Perfect. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into our next set of passages in our next excerpt. Um, the last one was from the 9th century astrologer Abu Mashar, but now we're going to jump forward several centuries to the first major textbook on astrology that was written in English in England in the year 1647, and that's William Lilly's book, Christian Astrology. Uh, so in book one, he has some basics on the significations of the planets, and interestingly, it's Structured a little bit better because he talks about the general nature of Venus, but then also talks about people signified and what Venus indicates when it's well placed in the chart versus what it indicates when it's poorly placed. So we start to get even more nuances um, than some of the, the previous texts introduced. Mm. All right, okay. so let me share the passage. And do you want to go ahead and read this one? Gladly. All right, so Venus. Nature, feminine, nocturnal, temperately cold and moist, the lesser fortune, author of mirth and jollity. People signified are musicians, gamesters, silkmen, mercers, linen drapers, painters, jewelers, players, lapidaries, embroiderers, women tailors, wives, mothers, virgins, 
choristers, fiddlers, pipers, when joined with the moon, singers, perfumers, semsters, picture drawers, gravers, upholsterers, limners, glovers, all as sell those commodities which adorn women either in body as clothes or in face as complexion waters. Manners when well dignified, Venus signifies a quiet man, not given to law, quarrel, or wrangling, not vitious, pleasant, neat and spruce, loving mirth in his words and actions, clean in apparel, rather drinking much than gluttonous, prone to venery, often entangled in love matters, zealous in their affections, musical, delighting in baths and all honest merry meetings, or masks and stage plays, easy of belief and not given to labor or taking any pains, a company keeper, cheerful, nothing mistrustful, a right virtuous man or woman, often had in some jealousy yet no cause for it, manners when badly placed, when Venus is ill-placed, then the man is riotous, expensive, wholly given to looseness and lewd companies of women, not regarding his reputation, coveting unlawful beds, incestuous, an adulterer, fanatical, a mere skipjack of no faith, no repute, no credit, spending his means in alehouses, taverns, and amongst scandalous loose people, a mean, lazy companion, not careful of the things of this life or anything religious, a mere atheist and natural man. Nice. I love it. So that is it's great. We are now firmly in like 17th century England uh, at this point. That's fantastic. Um, I learned a lot of words from these passages. <laughs> okay, well, um, please inform me because I am not. Um, what is a limner? Do you have any idea? A limner is someone who Google this. <laughs> um, I looked this up the other day. Oh, it's a, a painter, especially of portraits or miniatures. Yes, yeah. So that one definitely surprised me. the The lapidary, um, lap comes from lapis, meaning. Um, you know, if you think of like the Lapis Philosophorum, the Philosopher's Stone, it's someone who works with stones or gems, um, mm -hmm. carving them. Uh, yeah. Let's see. I hesitate to like Google all of these live. Um, I don't know what a skipjack is, for example. I think um, a skipjack is just someone who it can't be relied on. They skip out on okay being there. Um, that makes that makes sense. Let's see, a mercer, it, you know, it's between silk men and linen drapers. It's someone who um, sells fabrics. Mm -hmm. um, let's see what else we have. Chorister, someone who sings or leads a choir. And uh, a semster is just simply an archaic form of seamster. Um, yeah, like a, like a seamstress. Exactly. Um, a graver. I figured it was like an engraver, but mm. I actually didn't look that one up. Yeah, probably engraver because it's right in between. It's like seamstress, picture mm -hmm. drawers, gravers, and then upholsters. Right. Uh, glover, I mean, that makes sense. Someone who's making gloves. Um, and let's see, in the, the manners when well dignified, saying not vitious, um, meaning they're not cruel or it's similar to vicious, but I guess it's actually a different word. 
Mm. Probably is what gave birth to our word vicious. Um, yeah. Okay. Vitious. Yeah. Something like that. British a variant spelling of oh not vicious okay it's a variant spelling of vicious so it's just oh, the, o- it the opposite of being opposite of being vicious not not yeah right got it that makes sense because it's in between like pleasant and neat and spruce right um, and then I thought that was so interesting rather drinking much than gluttonous which made me wonder if they. Um, that that would be contrasted with Jupiter, where the gluttonous might be more of a Jupiterian fault, where drinking too much is a more Venusian fault. Mm. Um, and that last one, actually going back, I was just thinking of a good term. One of the things he's he's saying here is that Venus. One of the things that does actually come up is that Venus is polite, mm. and Venus mm-hmm. would be like a person with a prominent Venus, where politeness or let's say decorum would be sort of important to them or would be more front and center as opposed to the opposite. If you think of somebody, let's say it's like a prominent Mars or something, then politeness is usually like one of the last things um, that they're they're sort of thinking about. Or sometimes like the impolite person says the first thing that comes to mind, even if it's not a nice thing to say or something like that. Right. Yes. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um you know, we can think of it like with Mercury Venus, for example, um, it can be the honeyed tongue or the silver tongue, depending on whether you're just kind of being kind or sweet to someone, or um, the silver tongue being more maybe manipulative mm, in, right. in relationship to someone. Like, oh, we can be very harmonious and pleasant, but maybe it's actually not to the best interest <laughs> of the person you're talking to. Yeah. Right, or or Mercury. Venus can also be like clever or have a way with words, whereas uh, Mercury Mars might be um, a different type of humor. Could be like crudeness, like mm. um, saying something crude would be more of a Mars type approach aesthetically. Totally, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> All right, let's see. Back to this. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting here, of course, that maybe Lily is spelling out a little bit more that might have been a little bit more implicit. Um, is he's making a distinction instead of just putting them all together in a single paragraph of when Venus is, he says, well-dignified, which could mean a number of different things, but let's just say generically well-placed or prominent in some way versus when the planet is badly placed or is afflicted in some way in terms of how the expression of the planet is sort of experienced or how it manifests in a person's life. And this just going back to the notion that Different Venus placements, depending on the condition of Venus in the chart, are going to manifest in different ways, different parts of the archetype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, I really appreciate the kind of separating out that he's done here. Um, the manners, when badly placed, are definitely uh, amusing, I guess you could say, to read. Um, yeah, one of the things that's funny is that the religious component, I didn't realize the religious component. Kind of carried through a little bit all the way into 17th century astrology in Lily because he contrasts in the negative ones. He starts talking about when Venus is poorly placed, the person being an atheist or being mm. um, not religious in, in some way. Yeah, it is really interesting how that keeps being a consistent theme, um, and and how you know maybe 
in connecting it to some of these really core themes of Venus, like love or devotion, as we've been talking about, that, that that's where religious expression is such a, um, it is an expression of love, a love for God or a love of the divine. And so not having that um, would lead one then to be an atheist uh, or mm. an, a natural man, as as said here. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting just because we tend, at least in modern astrology, I think we tend to associate Jupiter more with religion and, and one's religious belief or philosophy. Um, mm. And it's interesting just seeing more of the, the religious component in some of the older traditional texts with Venus. Absolutely. Yeah, that was an eye-opening one for me, definitely. Um, let's see, a right or a virtuous man or woman, and that issue, that's a really interesting and, and tricky component of some of the traditional texts is the notion of virtue and that which is virtuous and whatever societally counts for virtuous conduct as opposed as opposed to essentially the opposite. Mm-hmm. Well, here we're getting into a um, one of the Socratic uh, dialogues that Plato wrote out, where you know, how do you identify virtue? What is virtue? What is a virtuous person? Mm. Um, so, it's it's a conversation that's been had for a long time. <laughs> right. Um, all right. Let's see. Is there anything else that's like new or worth dwelling on before we move on to some more? Recent or more modern astrological authors. Well, I I do find interesting the masks and stage plays. It's another art form or performance being brought in here. That we've seen a lot of emphasis on music and painting, um, and of course clothing. So much of a focus on clothing and the people signified: silkmen, mercers, linen drapers. But I thought that was interesting with masks and stage plays. Um, players in the people signified players then would have referred to what we would call as actors now, um, and so that that performative element of Venus, I yeah find that quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one other it mentions perfumers, which I thought was interesting because that came up in the last two, the notion of that which smells good or like good smelling things. And that being contra- contrasted, of course, with the opposite, which is like bad smelling things. Um, and again, just a benefic malefic contrast of like Venus being good smelling things and perfumes versus Mars or, or Saturn indicating bad smelling things. Perfume, it's the original love potion. So it makes sense in this, right. uh, this placement. And also that mention um, later on delighting in baths and how that connected to cleanliness and the other ones. Right. Yeah. All right. I like that. All right. I think then we are now going to transition into 20th century astrologers. Um, one of the earliest of which that I wanted to mention, well, that I've been using for this entire series, because I've just been using the same authors for the entire series, is Reinhold Eberton and his book, uh, The Combination of Stellar Influences, which was published in 1940 in uh, German originally, but this is from an English translation published by the AFA that ended up being very influential and influenced a number of later 20th century authors. That's one of the reasons I wanted to mention it. This was one of my first astrological texts that okay. uh, that I had. Yeah. Nice. Uh, when did you start with it? Um, 
I started with it in 2010 was the beginning of my kind of seriously getting into astrology. And nice. um, my dad was the one who turned me toward it. And so this was one of his big texts that influenced him. And uh, so it was on the, you must have this list. <laughs> yeah. Everton was hugely influential, um, especially for <clears throat> a number of like English or English speaking authors in the like second half of the 20th century. And I know um, both your father as well as Rob Hand and a number of other astrologers who were very influenced by it. Mm -hmm. It's so concise. You just pop it in your pocket and you're set. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You you really can't beat that. He is not not wordy. I think I'll definitely that's a pro of this book. So he breaks it into different categories. There's four different categories. One of them at the start, it just says the principle of Venus is love and art. For psychological correspondences, he lists positive ones, which are physical attraction, feeling, a sense of harmony, beauty, and art, a positive outlook or attitude towards life. And then the negative psychological correspondences are sexual aberration, sentimentality, a want of taste, heedlessness, and vice. Um, then biological correspondence, uh, glandular products, kidneys, and veins, and then sociological correspondence, um, intellectual, a young girl or maiden. Actually, I wonder if that's a typo, but mm. that's a typo. It might be Social held over from Mercury. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Sociological correspondence, a young girl or maiden, sweetheart or mistress, people who are connected with centers of art or centers of entertainment. So that is definitely more concise than our last last three authors. You could just take all of Ebertine's categories and then take all of the previous authors and divide up what they've said and just put them into all of his categories very neatly. And you know, with the principle just love and art, it really does in some ways kind of boil down to that love and art or love and beauty. Um yeah, it's so wonderfully clear. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I thought it was funny, interesting. Sentimentality is a negative one. Like being overly sentimental is kind of interesting to think about as a as a negative trait. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That the, there's a like a saccharine quality that could be a negative right. Venus expression. Like yeah. um, we've been talking about sweetness, but when sweet becomes a little too much, you're like, what is that? <laughs> Right, or like movies where they're trying too hard to be pull on some sort of sentimentality or something like that, but it's not really working, or they're not doing it very well in like a genuine way. Absolutely, um, you know, in films where it's the uh, as we call it, like the fairy tale ending, where you're like, okay, well, what happens after the kiss or after the the wedding? Well, then there's the rest of life, right. and um, we you know that's why we need a whole pantheon of archetypes <laughs> to help us understand them yeah um and i like the next one as well a want of taste so tastelessness or um or saying like the other side we hadn't necessarily talked about because it's it's a little tricky because obviously that's very subjective but what is tasteful versus what is tasteless um mm. and if you can create a category like that um, you know, positive versus negative manifestations of of taste. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as subjective as what do we each find beautiful, or what do we each find attractive? Right. And taste is um, as subjective. Right. 
And then finally, Vice, which nicely kind of summarizes a bunch of the individual significations a number of the other earlier traditional authors were mentioning. Um, but again, coming down to, to issues or questions of like, what is a vice or what are vices or, or like indulgences and what is overindulgence in something versus what is an appropriate level of indulgence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That feels really fitting. Yeah. All right. Um, well, actually, let me mention something really quickly in connection with that, which would be um, gambling, for example. So let's say, um, you know, let's say there's a, a positive, let's say just hypothetically, manifestation of like gambling occasionally or something like that as, let's say, a game and something done for enjoyment versus, let's say, there's an unhealthy, um, like addiction to gambling. Where it's something that's like taking over or like ruining a person's life or something like that, as a modern day, let's say, example of of a vice where there's not too much of a judgment call that's being put on that, but it's more just something that's either done for enjoyment or something that's done in a way that the person doesn't even enjoy it anymore, but they're just doing it almost, let's say, compulsively. Definitely, and that makes me think of the contrast you brought in going back to William Lilly where one of the people signified the second one listed after musicians is gamesters. And gamesters are those who uh, will make money at playing games. And so, as you're saying, it could go either way, whether it's a a vice or, I guess, a pleasure or even a gift. Um, Thinking of, I got really into uh, watching the show The Queen's Gambit, if Mm. you've seen it. uh, Right. I ended up watching it twice and reading the book as well. And um, she is a great example of both simultaneously, extraordinary chess player and uh, therefore kind of a gamester as we're talking about it, someone who makes money from the skill at playing chess, but then her vice is uh, addiction to alcohol, to pills. And uh, so she she's kind of holding both simultaneously. Um, that's actually a good sort of transition, but one of my favorite um, examples, there's a good one, uh, chess player is Gary Kasparov, who actually has Sagittarius rising and has Jupiter in the fifth whole sign house, um, which is actually two things we haven't mentioned so far. One, traditionally, the fifth house being the house associated with Venus and is said to be the joy of Venus. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of interaction and, and interchange in traditional texts between Things that are signified by Venus and things that are signified by the fifth house, um, but one of them that that comes off or, or rubs off from Venus onto the fifth house is like games and things that are done for for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, and, and Gary Kasparov, of course, is the world famous and was at one time the top chess player in the world at one point. Mm, yeah, no, that's that's a great um, great example for sure, and I'm glad you mentioned that that. Venus's joy is in the fifth house, and 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 also tying in a number of the passages we read that you know with the connection to like mothers um, that where you know love making makes children makes mothers parents and the fifth house being the house of children as well, but also you know procreation and um, and you need Venus there to make that happen. Yeah, and really a lot of. Um significations of the fifth house in traditional texts really emanate from that 
association with Venus. Um, the longer and longer that association is around, it's it sort of the fifth house just keeps getting more Venus significations, basically. Yeah, makes sense. Um, and Venus or the fifth house was also um, it was called the place of good fortune, and it was associated with um, the concept of fortune and with like physical incarnation because it's one of the houses that are below the horizon in the sphere of the earth, mm. which gives it more of a physical component compared to the houses that are above the horizon, which were associated with the realm of um, spirit and the, the intellect and the mind. Mm. So that's another sort of fifth house component. There we are back with the strength of the body, weakness of the soul, dichotomy yeah. as well. The whole mm. spirit um, matter or spirit body distinction that was so strong in ancient astrology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So let's see, going back to that. Now we're going to get to some more recent authors. Um, the next one is Stephen Forrest and his book, The Inner Sky, which was published in 1988. And I think I've only used this in the past one episode, but it's also a pretty good um, summary of like late 20th century views on astrology and, and where things started going. Mm -hmm. um, I think, is it your turn? Do you want to go? Sure. I'll okay. read that. Right. So. Actually, I think I should do this one because then you can read the next passage. Okay. <laughs> last author. Sure. Sounds okay. good. All right. So Stephen Forrest, he says he breaks it into three categories. The first one is the function of Venus. He says the the restoration of equilibrium equilibrium to the shattered sensitivity, the stabilization of a network of supportive emotional bonds, the development of the capacity to make an aesthetic response. The dysfunction of Venus is indolence. Manipulativeness, vanity, spinelessness, chronic abandonment to sensuality. And finally, the key question of Venus is how can I calm down? What do I need in a partner? What can I bring to a relationship? So we see at this point that we've taken a pretty major shift more towards um, psychological and sort of character orientation in terms of Venus and in terms of the way that it's being described and talked about, and especially in terms of the questions of um, questions about what the person needs in their life and in terms of relationships. Yeah. It feels like this one really stands on a lot of what we've already read. Like it is it's almost assuming behind it the understanding of, you know, love and relationship and um, attraction and sexuality and so on. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, those key questions are quite interesting. The, the second two make a lot of sense. What do I need in a partner is a really important Venusian question. And, um, and what can I bring to a relationship? So it's looking at uh, your side of the equation and, um, and how one needs to be met in relationality. I find the the first question quite interesting. How can I calm down? And actually, I brought all the way back to that um, to the lungs in uh, Valens of you know that deep breathing that calms us. But um, how can I calm down? Coming more into a harmonious, easeful, relaxed, pleasurable state, uh, as opposed to being agitated or something like that, which would I guess be more Martian. Yeah. What what can I do to relax? 
Mm-hmm. It's sort of like what, or which can sometimes be like um, your pastimes, the things you do outside of work. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So one of the shifts at this point is that it's interesting when it talks about what do I need in a partner and what can I bring to a relationship. Um, some of the things that came up in late 20th century astrology about it not necessarily being the placement in a chart an indication of that which will happen, but instead sometimes more of an active process of what you're putting out into the world and sometimes what you're attracting to you in, in some sense, which um, in some instances can be taken too far into an extreme of, let's say, like the secret or something like that, and, and the belief that you can like sort of manifest anything you want in your life just by desiring it or just by wanting it or, or focusing your thoughts on it. Um, but there can also be a, a more positive component or limited component to that of just recognizing um, maybe let's say the type of people you attract in relationships if there are sort of repeated um, versions of like the same thing and maybe it's not always a component of you know those people picking you but sometimes what you're actively attracting to you somehow even if subconsciously mm-hmm. absolutely yeah I mean I feel like that is really such a helpful place um, of when we can turn to astrology when we can turn to our Venus placements if we find ourselves caught in, particular repetitive relational patterns of okay how do i break this pattern and getting to know what the uh the placements are that stand behind those patterns and then asking ourselves you know how can i redirect that same energy but towards something that's more life enhancing or that feels healthier uh that feels more more balanced and um so it's kind of like a relationship diagnosis or something like that to help us foresee the pattern and then break it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And not that, I don't know, not that if a person does sort of attract certain types of relationships, not that that's necessarily always a person's fault because it may very well not be, but it's interesting thinking about um, one of the things that's interesting is sometimes Especially in like younger people's charts, um, Venus placements sometimes describing something that they don't want or identify with initially, but at different points in a person's life, a person might identify with their Venus placement more strongly, or there might be aspects of a person's Venus placement and what they want or need in relationships being different at different points in the life. And sometimes that can be through. Um, just different variations of the same archetypes being activated at different points in time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I can certainly attest to that personally. Just seeing, um, you know, my own Venus placements and how they came through earlier in my life, and it totally fit those placements. And then realizing that those expressions might not have been working, and then seeking something else out that also happens to fit those same placements, but creatively, you know turns them in a really different orientation. Um, and I'm sure, you know, that will continue to to grow and evolve. Um, I think that's we're we're meant to grow with our charts throughout our whole lives. We don't ever arrive. Um, the seed keeps growing. Yeah, it keeps growing and developing and there's different um branches that like sprout off or shoot off in different directions than you might have anticipated initially. And a lot of that is just different 
it's both maturing sort of and growing as an individual and having one's Venus placement mature, but also um, having things like the transits and experiencing different transits to Venus where you might have, let's say, a Jupiter transit one year, or you might have a Saturn transit another year, or even a Uranus transit that comes in and shakes things up with one's Venus placement. Um, but then also secondary progressions, and sometimes Venus can station retrograde or station direct at different points in the person's life, showing an important turning point, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting when, um, you know, if someone is born with uh, Venus either retrograde or, or stationed, and it, if it's especially if it's early in a sign, how it can be in that sign for so long throughout their life. And then at some moment, maybe quite late in life, when it changes signs, there's suddenly this whole other opening up in terms of relationships or in terms of, you know, how one loves or how one expresses themselves um, aesthetically and so on. Yeah, for sure. Um, different phases and different chapters in a person's life with respect to relationships, um, or even secondary progressed Venus making aspects to other planets, describing different um, periods or different episodes in a person's life with respect to relationships that may be notable in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our last one. Um, so this is from. The last one I've been using this. I didn't just like pull this quote out for um, your sake, but I've been using this just because I thought it was a very good. Um, Richard Tarnas' Cosmos and Psyche, which was published in 2006, was kind of a good summation of a lot of the astrological tradition when it came to describing the significations of the planets in the first one of the first chapters of the book. Although one of the things I noticed that I thought was interesting, and I don't know. Necessarily, what to make of it, but that the passage on Venus is actually shorter than any of the other passages for other planets, which I thought yeah. was interesting. It, yeah, it is curious, especially because he uh, is known for long, languorous sentences and paragraphs and books. And um, Mercury, Jupiter will do that. Mercury, Venus, Jupiter will do that. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, it is yeah. not a not a short book, and the passage on Mercury I think is like super long. But this is Venus, and I think part of it is just being able to summarize, as we were saying, some of those core principles in some way, in a way that's maybe easier to summarize than some of the other planets, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, shall I read it? Please. Okay. The principle of desire, love, beauty, value the impulse and capacity to attract and be attracted, to love and be loved, to seek and create beauty and harmony, to engage in social and romantic relations, sensuous pleasure, artistic and aesthetic experience, the principle of Eros and the beautiful, Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. It really is, it's concise, it's very much to the point. Yeah, I mean that pretty much sum, sums up like most of what we've just spent the past three hours talking about pretty well. I, I almost wish we had run through and just done the passages really quickly at the beginning because that would have been a great starting point. But instead, we've sort of come full circle at this point back to where we started in some ways. Absolutely. And just on a personal note, this is where I started too, that this was my first understanding of what Venus is. And um, so each of these words as descriptors of Venus is just deeply uh, familiar and um, 
which I think, as you say, coming full circle can be seen and and everything we've talked about or everything I've contributed it's very much influenced my my view and understanding of Venus. Yeah, and I think we can see how this has remained m- remarkably consistent actually throughout the astrological tradition. Going, you know, we started in the second century CE, and now we've come all the way up until the year two thousand six, and yet. Astrologers have been saying some very similar things at this point for about two thousand years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like if you uh, you took everything we we read and you boiled it down to a reduction, like a culinary reduction, and here it is, <laughs> right? Cooked down to the essence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there anything here we haven't touched on or, or dwelt on? At this point, or anything that's that's different, or I mean, I guess this really is more just summarizing where we've come to at this point. You know, the one thing that I will just mention is that the word social, because we've been focusing a lot on the romantic. We have talked about friendship and companionship, but how social really encompasses all of that social relations, and that Venus does have that connection. To, to our social relations, and that it isn't maybe just a heart connection, but those we keep harmony with, those we keep companionship with. And uh, so I think maybe that's the one word <laughs> that we hadn't said thus far. Yeah, no, that's great. And that, that also caught my eye as well, because we've all, or in some ways over the past year since the pandemic, we've all had a crash, crash course in that things that that thing that people always said, but it it became much more clear last year, which is that idea that humans are like social creatures, and that social interactions are are actually a very important part of having a healthy life. And the the depth of being deprived of social connections with other human beings is actually something that's often experienced as painful or harmful or um, just not pleasant for. Um, you know, humans in general, and of course, obviously, there's ways in which that can be inverted, and and people can feel awkward in social situations or not have a good time in social situations. Let's say, but for the most part, um, having some sort of social interaction with other humans is something that's like a core need for everybody on some level. Yeah, yeah, we need each other, <laughs> and um, you know, I'm thinking of. The, the Beatles song, like all you need is love. And um, well, I think we do need more than just love. We absolutely need love. And therefore, we absolutely need Venus in our lives uh, in, in whatever particular form Venus takes for each of us. But that that is a, a fundamental need to be loved, to be connected, to um, to be able to commune through the heart is essential. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, and there's there's different many different ways in which a person can find that either in terms of love or in terms of relationships. Um, relationship being a very broad category and also being something connected to the seventh house as well. But there's certainly overlaps there between Venus and the seventh house and. Um, where we meet the other in our life and how that's contrasted with the self and the ways in which sometimes um, one only finds oneself through the other. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. 
Venus really reflects that to us. And uh, yeah, that mirroring. Right. All right. Um, well, I'm wondering if there, that's a pretty perfect stopping point. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else we should mention or that we're going to regret not mentioning. I think you did ha uh, write a passage um, related to Venus that's connected to something you wrote that's like a homage to the planets, right? Yeah, and this this is even briefer <laughs> than the last okay. piece that we read. This this comes out of um, a longer kind of poetic uh, homage that that I wrote, um, coming out of a very profound kind of experiential encounter. This was at the very beginning of my astrological journey, and um, it was a kind of meeting of the planets. Like this is who we are, and. Um, I've never been able to see the world without them since, you know, being able to kind of see through that astrological lens. And so this is just the the line on Venus. And you can see the the tingings of my own biased perspective here as a you know, Venus Neptune person, for example, and a couple other things. But this is Did how we I mention anything about your chart at this point, because that was actually mm. <laughs> part part of why we did this episode, because you Fit in with part of my attempt to have some continuity in this episode of of people that match the rising sign of the planet mm -hmm. we were talking about. We hadn't mentioned that. Yes, I have Taurus rising. Okay. In my chart, that yeah. is your your credentials that we should have mentioned. <laughs> that is your street cred for the the beginning of this episode, primarily. Perfect. Um, okay. Yes, I have uh, Taurus rising and. Um, have a lot of Venus aspects in my chart too, just planetary aspects. So um, Venus is part of a stellium with Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and then that's trying to Jupiter, um, and it let's see sextile to Mars as well. Do you um, want to show it? I give everyone the option. You don't have to, but it's up to you if you're just describing it. Sure. I mean, we don't need to take up too much time with it, but um, I don't mind showing it. Okay, let me see if we can pull it up. Um, okay, so and this is is this an accurate accurate birth time? Uh, four seventeen p.m. Yeah. Yes. Are you sure? Is there any any questionability about whether it could be ambiguous birth time? There is absolutely no question <laughs> whatsoever. Um, my mother. It's on the birth certificate. My mother likes to tell the story about how she uh, looked at me, looked at the clock, looked back at me. And so <laughs> she knew exactly. I'm sure my dad was looking exactly at that as well. Um, we're, we're timed down to the second in my family. <laughs> nice. And, that um, is one of the great advantages of having uh, astrologer or astrology adjacent parents is having an accurate birth time. Yes, it is. Um, I actually shared this story uh, very briefly on on Twitter a few months ago. That uh, when my dad drew up my chart for the first time, which was probably within the first you know twenty four to forty eight hours of my existence, um, it, he's drawing it up, and my mom is there, and um, and he just says, "Uh oh." And she's like, what? Why are you saying, uh-oh? <laughs> and he says she has an unaspected son. And um, 
and my mom was just like, aspect it to something. <laughs> um, and so then from there, my dad had to go on to learn about midpoints because I have a lot of midpoints to my son, even though it doesn't make a major aspect to any other planets. Okay. That's going to be, I'm going to put together a list, but that's going to be in the top 10 things like not to say after you've looked at somebody's <laughs> chart is, uh-oh, it's going to be in like the top three, I want to say. Yes. Uh-oh. <laughs> Especially when it's your newborn daughter. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So yes. All right. We'll have to do a separate episode on like chart reading etiquette. That that's actually a really important episode. <laughs> yeah, actually, no, no. I think about that. That was just a joke, but that would actually be a good episode. Absolutely, etiquette and ethics and astrology. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So back to the chart. Um, okay. You have just describing it for the audio listeners. You have twenty-four Taurus rising. So Venus is the ruler of the ascendant, and it's. Located at 28 degrees of Sagittarius um, in the eighth whole sign house. I'm not sure what house it's in quadrant wise. Do you know? Yeah, um, of course you know. It is in, um, it's still in the eighth house. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's, let's see, it's conjunct Uranus at 25 Sag and Saturn at 21 Sag and is part of a broader Sag stellium with the sun earlier in the sign at four degrees of Sagittarius. So that is the, unas the notorious unaspected sun. That is the notorious unaspected sun. Um, you know, it does make it ten degrees off of the the descendant, um, right? And then it it's at a bunch of midpoints. Some are more exact than others. Um, the the Mars Neptune midpoint is exact to the minute, actually, hmm. and then it's at the midpoint of Venus with Pluto, Uranus with Pluto, and then a little more broadly, uh, the Mercury Saturn midpoint. So. Yeah, well, and it's like almost exactly sextile the midheaven, which actually in like ancient astrology was a major mitigating factor for planets that are in more challenging houses. Is um, Paulus Alexandrinus, I think, mentions in like the fourth or fifth century that an aspect within three degrees to the midheaven can counteract and, and can help um, improve planets in, in any sort of houses by making them more active or busy. So uh, you know, it's not aspecting other planets per se, but it is aspecting an angle pretty strongly. You know, Lisa was actually the first person to point that out to me. <laughs> okay, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, so now you're you're the second. So I really appreciate that. Yes, it's aspected to something. <laughs> okay. Um, but in terms of Venus and our our themes here, that um, it is part of that Saturn, Uranus, Neptune stellium, and um, you know, sextile to Mars, and it's got it's part of some of those midpoints too, like the uh, sun at the midpoint of Venus and Pluto. So, right. Um, and just ever since, you know, before I ever knew anything about astrology, and although, you know, was in the milieu of it, of course, but, you know, grew up around a lot of myth telling in my schooling and just as my own interests. And I was always drawn to the Venusian figures. I always wanted to be them in, you know, it's, whether it was in a school play or just in my own imagination, wanting to be Freya, wanting to be Aphrodite. And um, yeah, just always, I, I remember when I first started studying my chart, be kind of disappointed that I wasn't Sun Venus um, because of that impulse to be Venus. But um, then I learned about the Ascendant. <laughs> right. As the ruler of the Ascendant. I mean, if it's any consolation, like a Valens or any astrologer that uses whole sign aspects would consider that to be like a really loose conjunction or co-presence between the Sun and Venus for whatever that's worth. I will take it. 
(laughs) And my six-year-old self will really take it. Right. (laughs) Um, All right, awesome. And all of that, the stellium is trining Jupiter pretty closely, which is over at 20 um, Aries. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice trine as well. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so um, in terms of the refractions of Venus, I guess I've had my different uh, experiences of that variety of ways it comes through. Right. Awesome. Um, all right. And going back to, did we just like interrupt doing the um, reading the passage? Well, I think that probably introduced maybe some of how my own perception of Venus would come through. So, right. Um, and the whole poem, I have various recordings of it out there. If anyone's interested, I have the full one um, that I put out last year. So, these lines from the homage to the planets. Venus, a verdant green of flowering beauty, vines growing in curls that turn into exquisite art, the silver sparkling of dew under leaves, mirroring a reciprocity of love and heartwarming presence, the shiver of pleasure and desire. And that was my best way of translating into words, um, just a kind of fully embodied experience of what Venus was and these images coming up of like the silver sparkling of dew under leaves. A line that didn't make it in there was Venus as fairy's laughter. And that's kind of some of my Venus-Neptune probably, but I was struck by the laughter throughout uh, the older descriptions of Venus too, laughter, joy, um, and so on. Yeah. Um, And I like also that you used the word reciprocity because that's Mm -hmm something that was kind of implicit, I think, in a lot of the earlier texts, but was never, I don't think, ex- stated explicitly, but that's a very Venusian concept as well. Definitely. Yeah, the reciprocity, whether it's um, to love and be loved, as in, in Rick's description, or in, um, you know, to give or receive in all of its, all of its senses. Yeah. Yeah, give and, give and take is a great um, core Venus principle, it seems like. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, I think that's it for our our deep dive into the significations and the meanings of the planet Venus. Mm. Um, thanks a lot for for joining me today to do this. Is there anything else that we need to mention that we didn't mention that you can think of? I think that's all. I think we've really thoroughly explored Venus. And if we missed anything, it was meant to be missed to be discovered at another time. <laughs> okay. Yes. Part of the, the great mysteries of astrology and the lifelong study of astrology. Well, hopefully we've given people some insight into the planet. Um, where can people find out more information about you and about your work? Uh, the central hub to get all that information is my website. It's just beccatarnas.com. And that will actually lead to my consulting site as well. Um, I give readings. And uh, I can also be found on the various social media platforms, also under my name, just Becca Tarnas on, on Instagram and on, um, on Twitter. Awesome. So. Uh, do you have anything coming up in terms of lectures or classes or teachings um, mm-hmm. in the near future? I do actually have a couple things. Um, 
I, a couple months ago, released an evergreen course that's an introduction to archetypal astrology. So it's really just covering the basics for someone that's new to astrology or wants to deepen in, but you know, through a kind of introductory lens and really defining what an archetype is and how it relates to astrology. Um, so that that's available. Uh, it can be found through my website. I offered it through the Academy of Oracle Arts, um, which is based in uh, the area of Northern California where I live. Um, I also have my third time teaching uh, my Lord of the Rings course coming up this autumn. Uh, it's a kind of guided read through of the Lord of the Rings for those who've explored it many times and those who've never explored it. I love teaching this class. It's my third year doing it. Um, I get a number of repeat students who want to read it again in community. So very simple class. It's just reading the one book and kind of having your hand held through the experience. And I just bring different things that I know about Tolkien and his writing process and imagination and myth into it. Um, and then I think the last thing I would mention is I am have the honor of being one of the keynote speakers uh, at a uh, online conference on astrological magic. Astromagia is the name of the conference. Uh, Austin Coppock's one of the speakers there too. And um, that will be happening the weekend of September 17th through 19th. And it's just Nina Griffin is also speaking really amazing um, this uh, lineup of speakers, and I'm kind of amazed and awed that I get to be part of it. So uh, anyone interested in astrological magic, it's going to be a beautiful weekend. Nice. That sounds amazing, actually. I saw the lineup for that just the other day, and it looks really good. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm going to try and attend every single talk if I can. Um, there's so much I want to learn. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for for joining me for this today. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you as well. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for letting me explore Venus with you. Awesome. All right. Thanks everyone for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. I guess that's it for this episode. So thanks for watching and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to all the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKenzie, Kristen Otero, and Sanjay Srihari. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes or private subscriber-only podcast episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, AstroGold Astrology Software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 for a 15% discount, the Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org, AstroGold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io, and finally, the Solar Fire Astrology Software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.